Dr. Rittner is facing kidney failure and is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. If you can help, please contact Dana McLean at 312-695-0828. Huge thank you to Bruce MacArthur for making today's episode possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. It is August 3rd, 2020, and we are back with another epic, historic interview with Dr. Robert Ridner, accompanied by my co-host, RFM, Radio Free Mormon. Hello, RFM. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here for part two, John and Dr. Ridner. And Dr. Ridner, so glad you could join us again. My pleasure. So let's begin really quickly, Dr. Rittner, before we jump in. So we've already talked about your background, Dr. Rittner, in episode one. We talked about the historical context and the history of the Book of Abraham as, as it related to Joseph and Kirtland and Michael Chandler, etc. And then we did a dive into facsimile one. And then we kind of ended there because there was so much to cover. Today, we're going to be covering facsimile two and facsimile three. But before we do, I think it would be fun to just do uh, a little bit of a reflection on what you have experienced so far since we released uh, episode one. So is there anything you'd like to share just in reflections of the reaction and then in specifically any uh, responses about the content? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's been absolutely overwhelming. I have spent the last two days responding to as many emails as I can, and I have received dozens in the plural now uh, of responses, all of them positive, I'm happy to say. What are the types and of responses you're getting? Extremely touching uh, remarks about the value of this inter these interviews, about my scholarship, about the the critical nature of the book of Abraham for people's lives in ways that I, as an outsider, couldn't possibly have imagined. This is only a 15 page manuscript. I had no idea that it could have such an impact on the way in which people actually uh, construct their lives and their thoughts. I mean, I was simply trying to work on a papyrus. And um, so this is, it's been a learning experience for me, and I'm absolutely humbled that anything that I could do in my arcane world of, of dealing with a dead civilization would actually be meaningful for a living human being. And apparently it is in ways that I, I could not possibly have imagined. And to all of those who have reached out to me and sent me kind and in some cases very detailed notes and anguished notes, I really appreciate it, and I, I thank you so much for trusting me with your remarks and for letting me know what you thought. And I have done some of my homework, so I'd like to segue quickly into some yeah. of Yeah, oh, really quickly, RFM, do you have any reactions you want to share before we jump into the content? No, except I've just been hearing a lot of great things about part one as well. Oh, good. Okay, well, so far so good. Um, is, the, is there some stuff you want to talk to Dr. Rittner just about facsimile one and people's reactions to it? Yeah, well, absolutely. Just, just first of all, lest we forget about this, um, it, it's clear that Smith's reconstruction of the story of Abraham in the book of Abraham with the aborted sacrifice of him is 
largely a carbon copy of what you have in the biblical text where Abraham has, is confronted with a sacrifice that is also aborted, but of his son Isaac. And the reason uh, where, again, in both cases, Yahweh s- steps in in both of those stories and prevents the what would be murder. But it's important to note that now, as we are speaking, in Egypt, there is an Abrahamic tradition which is alive and well and being celebrated as we speak because we are in the time of the major festival for the Islamic world, which is the Eid al-Adha, which is the festival of sacrifice. And that celebrates the permission by Yahweh to Abraham to not kill his son Isaac. That is the critical, the most important celebration in the Islamic world. Now, what the reason for, for bringing that up is that if there were post-biblical traditions of Abraham, you would expect to find a reflex of that in the continuing cultures of the Near East. They haven't forgotten everything. And the Abraham story is not only alive and kicking, it's predominant. It is most, it is more important than Moses in the current world of Egypt. And yet there is not one trace, not a scintilla, not any reflection of the book of Abraham tradition, whereas the biblical tradition is extremely predominant. So one has to wonder, if there were a second story, why is it that it is not enshrined in living testimony when Abrahamic lore is so strong? And that brings up the question of the Leiden papyrus, where there was a supposed example of the the book of Abraham tradition in a Greco-Roman document, in a document from, uh, this is something else I want to point out. I, I went back and checked the date. I was following the church's remark in their statement that it was third century, this Leiden papyrus. It's actually fourth century. So it's a hundred years, even more remote from the time when Abraham was supposed to have existed. But the problem is, if it's being reflected there, why don't we see it somewhere else and we don't? It's not there. It's it's not in the Islamic tradition, the Hebrew tradition, or the various varieties of Christian traditions. So that is a problem, especially when we're seeing Abraham celebrated literally as we speak. Do you have a reflection on that, RFM? Uh, no, only that. And I know we're going to get into the apologetics relating to the book of Abraham at a set, uh, but Acknowledging everything that Dr. Rittner has said is absolutely accurate. What the apologists tend to do is they tend to look at a different set of legends relating to Abraham's attempted sacrifice in Babylon when he was thrown into a furnace, very much like the story of the the Hebrew children that we read about in Daniel, and he was saved. May I interject there? Oh, please do. Because I've I've discussed that specifically, and I heard him, I heard John Gee refer to that in a podcast this morning that I was asked to listen to. The problem with that is that that has nothing whatsoever to do with the patriarch Abraham, and John Gee knows that. That particular Coptic story to which he refers 
is set in Mesopotamia, and it is not of the patriarch Abraham, but of Saint Abraham of the town of Arbala, which is the modern Iraqi city of Irbil. And the pharaoh in that, the Ford pharaoh is being used as a title, not a personal name. And he is not an Egyptian king. The word, the, the Coptic word there, paro, is the descendant of the earlier Egyptian word pharaoh. And paro, in that Coptic text, which I have read, is simply a designation that means king. It's the same term that you would use for the Roman emperor, the king of Persia, or anywhere else. So it's not distinct to Egypt. So the king who burns the, this saint, this is taking place under the Sasanian Empire, all in Mesopotamia, with a Sasanian Persian ruler punishing a local Iranian saint who is Syriac, a Jacobite. This has nothing to do with Egypt whatsoever. It's merely a saint's tale from Iraq that has been copied over into the Egyptian tradition. But it's not antiquity. It's not the patriarch Abraham. And it has nothing to do with that, except that the saint happens to have the same name. So this evidence is irrelevant. And it was published accurately that the king referred to as Shapur II of Persia. We know precisely who this is. And the text specifically says that his territory of control is Mesopotamia. It couldn't be more specific. Presenting this as John Gee did in a feshrift is a dishonor to the person to whom it was presented. And it is a complete, absolutely a complete distortion of facts that have been known since, since 1908 when it was properly published. And the 1908 publication is accurate, and what John Gee does with it is com a complete fabrication. And he even admits that everyone else has recognized that it's some Persian king named Shapur. Well, it's not some Persian king. It's specifically Shapur II in Mesopotamia, no relation to Egypt. End of story. I hope I answered your question. You did. Are those the same stories that are reflected anciently related to Nimrod being the king? Uh, that I can't tell you. Okay. All right. So I think, I think Dr. Rittner, you have a few other things you want to share just, just to follow up on our, on our discussion of facsimile one from last time. Is that right? Ah, Yes, actually, there is. There's the issue also from the podcast that I was asked to listen to this morning. And that is a podcast entitled, I think, Mormon Voices, that was. Yeah, let's set this up. RFM, do you mind setting this up for our listeners, those who are just joining us and may not fully remember uh, presentation one? Oh, sure. Well, I think that what Dr. Rittner's talking about is the fact that uh, last week, I think it was, uh, the Fair Mormon group does a podcast and they had an interview. There was a lady who did an interview with John Gee and he was presenting a number of comments about the Book of Abraham, a number of apologetic evidences for the Book of Abraham. And in the middle of this conversation, he, refer he refers to Dr. Robert Rittner 
in the context of talking about sacrifice, specifically human sacrifice among the ancient Egyptians. It was uh, John Gee's position, and still remains his position, that actually the ancient Egyptians did perform human sacrifices. And so therefore the narrative in the book of Abraham is correct as to time and place, talking as it does about human sacrifices. He notes that Dr. Robert Rittner states that there is or was no human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. But then John Gee says that Dr. Rittner has apparently forgotten what he wrote in his doctoral dissertation in which Robert Rittner, Dr. Rittner, stated there that there was such a thing as human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And then he he said that, of course, somewhat facetiously, uh, implying that Dr. Rittner has reversed his position from his doctoral dissertation to what he's claiming now. And this is important because when, when we look at Joseph Smith's, and we know from last week that, that when Joseph Smith has this, this human-like figure on top left, that should be Anubis, but, but they've drawn in the head and they've drawn in a sword or a knife, even though that, that's not what that should be represented there, that, that, that Joseph is imposing on this a human sacrifice. And so we've got Joseph Smith basically, in, a, in effect, claiming that Egyptians were involved in human sacrifice, you know, 2,000 years before BCE, right? And so that's the main contention. And then Robert Rittner would, would then have, you, you, Dr. Rittner, would have opinions about whether in Egypt there were human sacrifices at all or there's any evidence of that. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I would be happy to respond. To okay, that. so let's let's hear it. Uh, how, how else might Joseph have gotten this wrong? All right. Well, if, if, if we're going to deal with the issue of human sacrifice, the, the problem with the reasoning being done by John uh, and Carrie Mulstein with regard to this is you can't merely argue, does human sacrifice exist? Then then you have to also ask, does human sacrifice exist in the fashion that it's depicted on this picture? Is in fact this illustration an actual image of it? which we know is not the case because this is a doctored image. There was no knife. And for those who just didn't catch it last last week, it, it is more supposed to look like this image on the right. We've pretty much established that Joseph and his scribes would have drawn in a human, sacrificing another human when really it's Anubis. And, um, you know, uh, uh, as you described, how would you summarize this image on the right, Dr. Rittner, for those who didn't catch last time? Instead of it being a sacrifice, what it should be, according to the... Yeah, well, actually, Anubis is simply administering uh, embalming materials to for the resurrection, quite literally, of, an, of Osiris on the, not altar, but a funerary bed. And so even though we've already established that they got that wrong, we still have to have this tedious discussion about, you know, is, is it even possible that sacrifices should exist in, in the time frame. So keep going. So now we've got facsimile well, one again. Sacrifice is the critical part of the story right. in the in the actual text. So we can dismiss the picture as being human sacrifice, but the question is, since it's raised in the text, is that reasonable? Right. And there the you have two questions. First of all, would the Egyptians be practicing human sacrifice? A. 
And B, would they be sacrificing a human in Ur of the Chaldees, or specifically Elkena, according to the designation in the text and the designation of the idolatrous priest who was supposedly holding the knife? RFM, would you be able to jump to that section real quick in Abraham and just read to us a verse or two just so that we know where you're reading from in the text and kind of what it's saying. Do you have that handy? Yeah, actually I do. It's Abraham chapter one, of course, which is right after facsimile one, which it's describing. And I will say something that just isn't interesting to me when I listen to the apologists such as Carrie Muelstein speak, sometimes they incorporate elements of Abrahamic lore into the book of Abraham. And they talk about Abraham here being sacrificed because he was preaching against the idols that his father worshipped. And there are some old accounts in the Abrahamic lore about him breaking apart these idols with a hammer. And then that's why he gets in trouble with the local authorities over in Mesopotamia, and he's thrown into the, um, the fire. But what I note here in the book of Abraham, it actually doesn't say that in our book of Abraham. It really doesn't say exactly why it is that Abraham is being sacrificed. It's implied that it's because he's raising his voice against the idolatrous gods. But what he starts saying in verse 7 is this. Therefore, um, where he talks about that he raised up his voice. No, the fathers turned their hearts toward these idolatrous gods. He gives their names, the four names, right? And the five names, if you include Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then verse seven, therefore they turned their hearts to the sacrifice of the heathen and offering up their children unto these dumb idols. Now, please notice that these are thank offerings in the book of Abraham. It even uses that word. So they are so into worshiping these idols that they're going to offer up their children unto them and hearken not unto my voice, but endeavored to take away my life by the hand of the priest of Elkanah. The priest of Elkanah was also the priest of Pharaoh. And it says now, is it? I'm not going to try and read too much, but that's, that's the thing is that now at this time, it was the custom of the priest of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to offer up upon the altar which was built in the land of Chaldea, for the offering unto these strange gods, men, women, and children. And so they laid their hands upon Abraham to sacrifice him as a thank offering. That's what it's called in verse 10. Even the thank offering of a child did the priest of Pharaoh offer upon the altar. So they, they're going to offer up Abraham just like they did three other virgins because of their purity and because they would not bow down to worship the gods of wood or of stone. So impliedly, and only impliedly, Abraham is also being offered up as a thank offering, but because he also was so pure that he would refuse to bow down and worship their gods of wood and stone. So that's what it says. Okay. Now, thank you, RFM. Now, now, Dr. Rittner, what's wrong with, uh, you know, with Joseph's writings in the book of Abraham as it relates to what you know about Egyptian history? Well, let's go to my next slide. If you could. Okay. I'll share the screen. It is, in fact, the case uh, in my book here, you're seeing here, not just my dissertation, but this is the published expanded version of it. Uh, for those who want to read my discussion, 
you can actually do that. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it uh, over this podcast. We actually make our Oriental Institute publications available free. I mean, you can buy the book if you like. I don't get a residual, so it doesn't matter to me whether you buy it or not. Although it is and has been our best-selling book, by the way, uh, in our press run. So this is now in its fifth printing. What's the title of the book for those who are listening? The Mechanics of Ancient Egyptian Magical Practice. Okay. Now, in this book, I am the one who points out the existence of human sacrifice. And I do that. I do that on page 162. If you go to the, my, my point is by, before I forget, is that anyone who wants to read this, you can do a free download of the entire book. You can get the whole book for free, uh, digitally. Just go on the Oriental Institute website, look under our publications, look for my name. There it is. You click a button that says download and the PDF is yours. So uh, if you want to know anything more about the details of execration or you want to read more deeply about the issues of the nuances of of human sacrifice or sacrifice in general, it's all in there. So let's go to page 172. Just 162, rather. So here we have, you can see, uh, for those of you who can get the visuals, you can see my section titled Human Sacrifice. What I did was analyze as the core of my dissertation an archaeological site at a Nubian fortress near the second cataract. It's a site known now as Mergissa. This was a new new installation by a a fortress in Egyptian's Middle Kingdom. And this was built in a virgin site. There was no local town there. The Egyptians set up a fortress, and whenever you set up a fortress, you would perform execration magic. And what execration, it's a fancy word for cursing your enemies. And you make little dolls, which are the antecedents of voodoo dolls. And the Egyptians, you would then write the name of your enemies on these dolls. And this is sponsored by the state. So the chancellery would actually go through, keep a list of all the names of the foreign rulers. And there was a standard boilerplate list of the rulers of the north, south, east, and west. You put them all down there. And every time some new king came to the throne or new chieftain, if they knew about it, they'd change the name in the, on papyrus. And then when you made a new set of figurines, you'd write these on multiple sets of figurines. So any one figurine would have many, many names on it, a section for Egyptians, a section for people from Palestine, people from Libya, people from Nubia, and even uh, criminal Egyptians. And then you smash them, you stick pins in them, you burn them, and ultimately you bury them. And the thing is that what you do when you bury them is you want them to be placed in an area where there is an old abandoned cemetery. Traditionally, we find these included in cemeteries where the offerings have stopped. And so what's happening from the Egyptian perspective is that the ghosts who live in that cemetery have not been fed thank offerings. They haven't been fed food 
Yeah. And so they are angry and hungry. They want their food offerings. And what you were doing is you're saying, here, take these people. And that's what these little voodoo dolls are for. So that they will be ritually tortured by the spirits as punishment. But they are being given over to the spirits of the dead to affect the curses. So you're asking ghosts to torture these people. And the whole point of this exercise is that it will be magically effective so that the Egyptians do not have to go to war. It's a way of making sure your enemies are peaceful and under your control without actually having to go out and fight them or persecuting them in any way or putting it another way. It's so you don't have to actually kill them. So instead of human sacrifice, the traditional practice, the normal practice, the practice that's celebrated in all the temples is the killing not of human beings, but the killing of little clay figures. That is what is depicted on temple walls. That is what execration is all about. That is the cursing ritual that's performed in all the fortresses on Egypt's borders and in the temples inside. So on a regular basis, do Egyptians commit human sacrifice? The answer is no. Do they sacrifice images of humans to avoid having to actually kill them on the altar? Yes. So there is some interaction with human sacrifice, and it's a way of getting out of doing it by smashing little clay dolls. Now, if you were on a fortress in Palestine, your fortresses are never going to be in a barren place where there are no surrounding towns because somewhere very close, there will be a Canaanite town, always. If you need to find a graveyard, you can find one. It's not a problem. If you are in Mirgissa, there is desert stretching away for hundreds and hundreds of miles where there are no villages and no towns at all. And so, and there was no town there when the Egyptians built their fortress. So can we go to my next slide? Yes, we By can. The way, many of these slides, I, I want the audience to understand that I'm having to cobble together illustrations sort of on the fly because I am officially locked out of my office and can't get at my slides, my books, my notes, etc. because of the coronavirus. So I'm, I'm working with what I can throw together from my office. No, that's great. And just I just want to summarize because there, there's a lot of my audience that that might get lost in the details, but just want this to be summarized. So, so we basically have Joseph Smith claiming that, you know, Pharaoh is sacrificing Abraham. We have, um, you know, John Gee saying- right, Well, I, I'm gonna tie it all together in a nice package after I get to this next one. Okay, slide. great, great, great. Okay, so here we are back. Um, are, do you wanna go to the burial slide now? Yep. Okay. So. So what we're doing now is I'm jumping over the rest of my discussion of the human sacrifice. At the, at the site of Mirgissa, there was found a discarded Nubian body. The head was cut off, and we have the, the flint blade that was actually used to cut the head. It was lying there by the, the severed skull. 
I did not participate in the excavations, I should point out, of this site. But what I did do was analyze everything up that was part of this execration ritual, all the pieces, including the body. And I pointed out in that section that is now no longer on the screen uh, that this was almost certainly a human sacrifice, that a, a person was killed at the time of the execration because the body wasn't buried, it was discarded. It was essentially tossed aside in a sand pit in one place, the head somewhere else. So in this next section I, in burial, I talk about the reason that's important that there be a burial. This is where I explain that in all the cases that we have, typically they are put in a older cemetery for the purpose of its invoking that ghost that I mentioned. Well, Edmund Gissa, you couldn't do that. There's no ghost. Because there's no older cemetery, there's no angry spirits who haven't received their offerings. So what do you do if you don't have an angry dead person? And you need that for the ceremony. You make one. So what you do is you take a political prisoner and you execute him. So yes, it's human sacrifice, but it's also a political ex execution because this is undoubtedly a captured prisoner. Uh, on a border fortress where you are fighting Nubians. So how you look at sacrifice vis-a-vis -vis how you look at political execution is a problem. And, and that's the case in wherever you would have it. But here it is important to note that what you've got is a unique phenomenon. What we are, when you say the Egyptians practice sacrifice using the English present tense, you mean that happens all the time. That is a regular feature. And what I'm saying is we have a case where once Egyptian practiced in the past tense sacrifice. So it is not a normal custom. The normal custom is to avoid it by using smashed dollies and then you put them in an old graveyard. Here they used smashed dollies and they had to make a graveyard. That is why I am not contradicting myself. It is what I explained in livid detail within the body of my dissertation, which John has said somehow contradicts itself. Read it for yourself. It's free. And so, and so on the podcast, when, when John Gee and Hannah Syriac basically say that, that, that in fact, human sacrifice was a practice in Egypt, uh, you know, 1700 years before, you know, BCE and that Joseph Smith must have been inspired by God because he got that right. And you, Dr. Robert Ridner, should know that best because in your own dissertation, you talk about uh, Egyptian sacrifice. Your response is what? Not in Egypt, in Nubia, not in Syria. Not in Elkena, if there is an Elkena, which is problematic in and of itself. And we can talk about Elkena in a moment when we get to fact simile three. Right. And not as a practice, right? Not as a normative practice. Okay. And, and just to come in here and emphasize what I read in chapter one, verse eight of the book of Abraham, it does state it was a common practice there. It says, now at this time, it was the custom of the priests of Pharaoh to offer up upon the altar men, women, and children to their strange gods. It's also important to notice that what's being, 
what's being done here when you're killing this Nubian prisoner? Uh, you are not actually offering him to anybody, right? To what gods? He's not being killed as an offering to gods. He's being killed to make him into a ghost. So this, this is not being done on an altar to any god. This is in a pit in the desert, not in a temple, not in a cult setting of a temple with priests around. There are priests around who are invoking this, but they're not doing it in front of images of gods. So the Nubian is not being sacrificed to anyone. He's being sacrificed for the purpose of making an angry dead man. So it is not the procedure that's being described. It's not like you have a statue of Osiris and you were killing this man in front of him or a statue of the idolatrous god of Elkina because no statue of a god is there. So it is completely incorrect in context, not for the same purpose. It's not as an offering, but is instead to make someone unhappy. It's a non-thank offering. It's to tick someone off so that he will then torture the names of the spirits that are, all, that are written on the voodoo dolls. So the mechanism is 100% the opposite. And Guy knows that because, of course, I was his teacher and I taught him what execration magic was. And he should know better. Well, I just want to add here, because I know we want to get to facsimile too, John. Yeah. But um, the reason this strikes me with such force is that I listened to this interview from last week, and anybody can listen to it. And it was obvious that John Gee was making fun at your expense, Dr. Rittner. He even giggles about it, along with the interviewer, about how ridiculous you are that you say that the, the Egyptians did practice did practice human sacrifice in your dissertation, but now you're saying the opposite with the suggestion that the only reason you're saying the opposite now is because you're just trying to tear down the book of Abraham no matter what you have to do to do it. Well, what I've had to say about sacrifice has nothing to do with the book of Abraham. Right. I, we, can, we can talk about at some point how I was brought into the book of Abraham situation, but that's another, that's another question. We will. And I just want to underscore one other thing here, John, and I apologize. No, don't apologize. I love it. That's why you're here, buddy. Okay. Well, Carrie Muelstein and John Gee, but especially Carrie Muelstein's writings, he has gone to great length to say publicly and in writing in the Ensign and also in videotapes that are available on the internet in support of the Book of Abraham, that the description of human sacrifice in the Book of Abraham is exactly the way all Egyptologists, or at least the majority of Egyptologists, his colleagues, understand the way the Egyptians used to practice human sacrifice. He says 20 years ago when he got involved in this, no, uh, it was different. People didn't understand about human sacrifice then. But that Kerry Muelstein has almost single-handedly led the Light Brigade into changing the opinion of all Egyptologists to revolutionize the idea and that now all Egyptologists understand that the way the book of Abraham describes human sacrifice in Egypt is exactly the way it was practiced among 
the ancient Egyptians. Is that statement correct, Dr. Rittner? Well, <clears throat> I'll try to be as concise as I can be on, on this. Um, there, Kerry wrote his dissertation on this very topic, and he was very careful to describe these as political executions rather than human sacrifices. So he walked a careful line that, that passed muster with Egyptologists. He did not prove that there was human sacrifice. He, in fact, just pointed these out as being human, as, as being political execution. You have examples of a text, which John Gee also references in this podcast, of a sila of King Neferhotep of the Middle Kingdom, in which, it is, which boundaries are being set up for a temple precinct. And it is said that anyone who trespasses any, any uh, bureaucrat who tra or priest who trespasses into this estate and would attempt to take away some of its assets would be burnt. Now, that is a statement of what would happen for committing a crime if you invade the temple precinct and plunder its resources, you will be burned. It's a death penalty for committing a crime. This is not for failing to worship the gods or failing to respect what a deity or a ritual. It's if you commit a crime, there will be capital punishment. That is not sacrifice. And yet this is the kind of example they want to choose. This is like saying, if you kill someone and we hang you for it, it's a human sacrifice. If that's the way you want to understand it, fine. Any execution could be taken in a religious way and given a connotation. And we execute people now. Is that human sacrifice? For some, you would say yes. But it's a question of, is this how the Egyptians are understanding it? And the answer is certainly not. They're putting, to be, they're putting to death for, for criminal purposes. There is also a recently excavated area in the Delta, the northern part of Egypt, during the time of political turmoil, where a, a large number of bodies have turned up that are, again, probably the result of warfare. It's been argued to be a massacre, a, a slaughter of captives, but that's in warfare. Is that human sacrifice? I don't think so. During the course of war, people are killed. Yes, you can say that's to the benefit of a deity or the, or the country, but that is not what is typically understood as human sacrifice. It's military activity. So all of the examples that they like to point to that are so-called recent, recent ones are in fact either criminal punishment or military activity. It's not a question of human sacrifice on an altar. There's no altar that's been found at this site in the Delta. There's no altar that is found in Mirgissa. There is no altar found adjacent to the Neferhotep stela. And so all of that is smoke and mirrors and confusion of terms and attempting to juggle anything in order to make it all make sense. But the bigger question is, so what if the Egyptians practiced human sacrifice? Would the Egyptians have practiced human sacrifice in North Syria, where they didn't have any physical control? 
Would they have looked like that on that illustration, which we know is doctored and therefore cannot be an illustration of it? So it's not a question of finding one little thing that might work. You have to make all the pieces fit. And that is the continual problem with the apologists, is they find one small aspect, which if you squint your eyes and look you know, slightly to the left, you can say, well, it sort of looks like this. But then it doesn't fit the entire picture because you're asked to ignore all of that. And you can't ignore all of it. If, it's, if the story is true, then all parts of it have to be true, not just one aspect of one picture or, or two lines in the text. And what you fail to do is present a complete picture. If you don't show all your work and explain all the details, then you cannot have a defense. And they never do that. And the reason is they don't have the facts. And no amount of, no amount of apologetics until the end of the universe will produce facts that never were and don't exist. Can I ask you just a yes or no question, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> I forget the question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read it. Here it is. The book of the, that true? The answer is no. <laughs> okay. Cause I was going to say the book of Abraham says that it was the custom among the Egyptians to sacrifice people for refusing to worship their gods. There is no evidence of that ever in any, in any context. On the, on the contrary, the Egyptians don't care what gods you worship, and they adopt every single deity, including Yahweh, the most popular deity in the Greek, in the, the Greek period. Egyptian magical papyri is Yao, which is just a different writing of Yahweh. The Egyptians invoke Apollo, Diana, Ereshkigal from Mesopotamia, uh, Reshep from Syria, Baal, the Egyptians add gods. They don't take any away. Never, never do they persecute you for worshiping, uh, for not worshiping their god. There is one period in Egyptian history, a monotheistic period under King Akhenaten, where he persecutes all the god except his favorite sun disk. But that's, that's a unique period. The Egyptians, as soon as he was dead, that movement stopped. And what, and what year would that have been approximately, Dr. Rittner? Uh, 1300s BC. Okay. And, and again, we have Abraham, if he even lived, somewhere between 1700 and 2000 BCE, so long before. Shall we move to effect? Uh, I hope I hope we've discussed human sacrifice sufficiently. <laughs> um, but we can. I, I understand Kerry has changed his mind and his approach going now that his dissertation is published. And he doesn't have to go through peer review. <laughs> he he can he can speak of human sacrifice all he likes. But if, but if if he were to if Guy or to Milstein were to make these claims about human sacrifice in this time period in front of colleagues such as yourself, what, what would the reaction be of the colleagues? Disbelief and disagreement. Yeah. Universal. And the only reason I'm making such a big deal about it here is because both John Gee and Carrie Muelstein have chosen to make such a big deal about it in their apologetic writings. Because when you look at it from the one side, if the ancient Egyptians did practice human sacrifice, which I understand they did not, Dr. Rittner, contrary, Guy, and Muelstein, 
But if they had, it's not a huge support for the book of Abraham. I mean, a lot of different cultures practice human sacrifice. The problem is, is that because the book of Abraham specifically says they did practice human sacrifice and that Abraham was on the receiving end of one of those human sacrifice attempts, that if the ancient Egyptians did not practice human sacrifice, then it becomes a huge obstacle to the truth of the book of Abraham. That's why they have to go there, I think. Well, sacrifice is critical to the story of Abraham in the Bible. His papyrus is the, his way in. It is his story. It has to be based on the Egyptian papyrus, which he bought. So what he has done is he's coupled the sacrificial story coming from the Bible with the piece of papyrus, which he bought. And so then you have to have sacrifice in Egypt. It's the theme of Abraham merged with the merchandise he had. There's your story. Very good. Thank you. Makes sense. All right. Let's jump to facsimile two because we've uh, we've still got facsimile two and three. Last uh, last time we talked about, you know, how many misses Joseph Smith had in facsimile one. And and, uh, and so now it's time to talk about whether he has hits or misses in facsimile two. So I will share the screen now for those of you who. Uh, would like to watch as we have Dr. Rittner actually translate these images to tell us what they actually say versus what Joseph Smith uh, translated them uh, or uh, supposedly translated them to have said. Check us out on YouTube or on Facebook on the Mormon Stories Podcast Facebook page. We think you'll get a lot more out of this if you refer to the visuals. So, Dr. Rittner, here we have facsimile two as it was first presented uh, to the saints. Uh, RFM, do you want to tell us anything about the the presentation of facsimile two to the saints? Uh, no, except for the fact that actually this is the way it is reproduced now in the published book of Abraham. And Dr. Rittner is going to tell us about how a lot of these pieces were actually missing from the papyrus that Joseph Smith had in his possession and how he filled it in by borrowing from other places. Perfect. All right. Uh, take it away, Dr. Rittner. Well, a couple of th general things to notice about this, first of all, and that is that the heading of this in facsimile two uh, that you, that you haven't reproduced, but the, the statement as published says that it is from the book of Abraham. Now, the book of Abraham is supposedly a papyrus, and John, Gee, and others have argued that this was a long roll that is missing, except this seems to be from it, and this, of course, also is missing. We don't have this as fighting previous papyrus, but every one of these things that look like this, uh, this is, is a separate piece. We know what this sort of a document is. It is a round, cut-out piece of papyrus, siphoned papyrus. It's not a roll. It's a rondelle, a circle, because it's intended to be a solar symbol, which is placed underneath the head of the mummy. It's not wrapped up and put in the hands or by the feet like you would a, a Book of the Dead scroll. So this was never part of a long roll. It could not 
have been part of a long roll. And it has a personal name on it that I can read. The name is Sheshonk. And this name is for a separate mummy that was not the mummy whore who owned facsimile one. What I'm saying is that if Joseph Smith thought this piece, which he had as a fragmentary piece of papyrus, which as we'll see in a moment was broken, not whole and not fully round, just a broken piece. He didn't know how it would originally have looked and assumed it was part of a sheet that was broken off. He assumed it somehow joined with facsimile one because they are both said to be part of the book of Abraham. If there were a book of Abraham, this would have had to have been on the papyrus. Except we know it can't have been on a long sheet of papyrus because these only come in circle form. No other way. Can't have it any other way. And it can't be for the same man in facsimile one because it's a totally different name. Now, he bought several mummies, and so this was originally on one and the facsimile one was from a different mummy, and he mixed them up. Over time, they got separated from the mummies. They're jumbled together, and he didn't know how many scraps he had, and he also didn't understand the concept of a long piece of papyrus because it was all broken up. So any judgments or statements made about how long the papyrus is can be thrown away. We can't rely on the long witnesses. What did they know in the 1800s of what a long piece of papyrus would be? They didn't know what papyrus was, basically, uh, and what a standard sheet. Anything that was larger than a normal piece of paper of the 1800 size would have been considered large for them. So they saying large doesn't, we can't say, oh, well, then it was 10 feet, 40 feet, whatever. And it can't even be real if this piece was supposed to be part of it, and we know it never could be, because it was always a circle, never part of a square or rectangle, and couldn't have been attached in any way to a document for a different person and a different mummy that he just happened to purchase together. And as we shall see as we discuss what's on this circle, there are bits and pieces of a third distinct unattached papyrus the Book of the Dead of Tasheret Min, which this, which he used to fill in the holes of this because he thought it was and he didn't know what it was. So he had absolutely no understanding of what documents he had, which ones made up his Book of Abraham, and they're clearly from things that couldn't possibly be the text of the Book of Abraham because like facsimile one, Nothing in this text, and let me underline the word nothing, is actually related to what is in the English text of the Book of Abraham, for which there is no underlying ancient language, Egyptian, Hebrew, Arabic, anything else. Let me let me ask you this, Dr. Rittner. So if we, if we on our screen, uh, go back to facsimile one, Facsimile one is in a square, right? Yes. And so you're you're saying a rectangle. this. It, well, uh, well, facsimile one is in a rectangle in a square. 
But when we see where it came from, you see it's a long horizontal sheet. Okay, so facsimile one, it, it you know was part of of that that original scroll that Joseph identified as the Book of Abraham. That was really this score of. Tell us what the name of the scroll was. Book of breathing of a priest named Hor. Book of breathing of a priest named Hor. So that turns into and I and I'm showing these on the screen. That sh that that turns into facsimile one. We've already established that Abraham probably never existed. If he did, uh, the the time frame of his existing versus the time frame of these scrolls is off by about 1600 years. Is that right? Yep. And then, and then we've already agreed, which the church we've already established, and the church agrees that the name Abraham doesn't appear anywhere on on facsimile one, and what what is represented in fa facsimile one literally has nothing to do with Abraham or anything in the contents of the book Abraham. So that's facsimile one. And then what you just told us is for facsimile two, it's this circle, and and the image that's in this circle wasn't even related to that 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 original papyrus that Joseph was working with. It was it, it would have been be found a somewhere document, else. Document a different shape and a different person. Yeah, totally different person, totally different shape, and again a totally different time period. And in a second, you will show us uh, what it what it, what its origins were and what it actually talks about. Okay. So, so this is the way it was actually copied by Joseph Smith's scribes. So tell our tell our listeners what the what they would be seeing here if they were actually looking at the image. So what what you are looking at now is a hand copy done by Smith scribes that is preserved in the what have been called various things the Kirtland papers, the uh, wonderful discovery of uh, alphabet and grammar and uh, RFM. Remind me of what. Uh, Brian Hogland is calling these now? I think these are called the Abraham Egyptian Papers. Well, these are, these are manuscripts that always were retained by the church. The church didn't have all the papyri, but they, they did keep these records. And let, let me just ask, why, if they had, if someone at some point had uh, a copy of, you know, if there was a piece of papyrus or a piece of Egyptian paper that had the images, uh, you know, the the circle and the images that, that turns up, turns out to be produced as facsimile too, why would some scribe have made a, a copy of it with handwriting? Do you have any idea, Dr. Ridner? Well, this is all the translation process. They, they, they were making hand copies so that they could try to read them. And what you see is they copy the sections that are extant and the other areas, there are wide open blank spaces because it had simply broken off. These papyri were not preserved intact when Smith was working on them. Now, whether some of that was broken off at the time he bought them or whether they were broken off as they were displayed repeatedly for visitors. There are references to being spread out on the floor. Uh, if, you do, if you do that with fragile texts over and over again, sections are going to break off. And so you make a handwritten copy, a drawing of, of what it is so that you can work with it and not destroy the source Precisely. paper. 
and and we just have to we haven't really talked about the history of this but the Abraham, Abraham Egyptian papers the church kept in its vault right RFM for many 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 decades and didn't tell anyone they had them and these only got produced when the tanners and others sort of forced the church's hand in the 65 66 time frame is that right RFM well actually the tanners did have leaked to them a transcript of the Abraham Egyptian papers and then they had leaked to them an actual microfilm version of the Abraham Egyptian papers, which is what I think Dr. Ridner had to use in his 2014 response to the church essay. Because until the last couple of years now, as a result of the efforts of Brian Hauglid and the Joseph Smith Papers Project, only in the last three or four years, to my understanding, has the church finally allowed to be published the actual papers that were used by Joseph Smith and his scribes to translate the book of Abraham, i.e. the Abraham Egyptian papers. I was shocked to find out that as recently as six years ago, in 2014, they were not publicly available and that Dr. Rittner had to go to extraordinary links in order to find the Tanner's version of it so he could use it in responding to the church essay because the church would not allow him to have access to the originals or reproductions of the originals to the church. Is that right, Dr. Rittner? That is, that is exactly correct. The Tanner book was, the microfilm book was absolutely indispensable. Of course, unfortunately, the, the printing of that was, let's just say faint and not the best possible quality. I was never allowed to see the originals, but it was sufficiently good that I was able to uh, work with it. And all of my interpretations are the result of that microfilm book. If I had not had that book, I could have done nothing with this material. So shout out to Sandra and Gerald posthumously <laughs> for their great work. Absolutely fundamental book. And not only for making the microfilm available, but for other discoveries that they made in 1968, in the initial dialogue journal publications that came out with the, with the release of the papyrus, uh, they made major interpretations about facsimile too, that are completely accurate to this day. And they were able to match the restoration, how the scribes actually filled in those blank spaces. And they did that without being able to read hieroglyphs, but they were able to see where some pieces were copied over from other manuscripts within other papyri within the collection. And it's perfect. And we're about to go through that, right? Yep. Okay. So on the screen, we're seeing a hand-drawn representation of the source document that Joseph Smith, Egyptian document that Joseph Smith would have been using that ends up becoming the basis for the church's production of facsimile too, right? And there's, and there's big chunks. Let's just, if it's a clock, let's just say from, from one o'clock to two o'clock, basically from the center on, on out, there's a big chunk of the papyrus of, of the image that's missing. Is that right, Dr. Rinner? Completely missing, yes. Yeah, so, the, so we have another instance where Joseph Smith and his scribes have to draw in a big chunk of the missing uh, papyrus, and we can now, from you, find out how well they did at uh, reproducing the missing fragments, correct? Yes. All right, so so is there anything you want to tell us about this 
hand drawing of of whatever the source would have been before we go on to the next slide. What is this? What is this about? What can you read any of this? And if so, what's it saying? Well, I, I've actually published it in my in my book. So yes, I've actually I've been able to read everything. The problem is that some of the some of what you have here are in hieroglyphs. Some of what you have are in hieratics. So you've actually got uh, different scripts, a sort of a cursive hieroglyphs. The, the primary scene is the creator god is sitting in the middle. You're missing his head. Uh, there are baboons who are worshiping him on either side. You can see them with their arms upraised. Maybe you can notice their tails uh, flanking a, a seated figure who has multi-heads because he's facing in two directions at once. There are then side inscriptions that flank the left and right of those. The one on, as we look on the screen to the left, includes the name of the owner, the, the name of the mummy for whom this was made. This is basically a text in order to cause the spirit of the mummy to rise up with the rising sun, and so to ascend into heaven. Uh, and that's what all of this solar imagery is about. There are different ways of expressing gods of the sky and the way that the spirit of the mummy will rise up. So that's basically what we're talking about. Okay. All right. I can, I can when, when, when we get a little further in, we, we can talk about what it actually says. Okay. So I think this next slide is, is, is going to allow us to analyze whether they, what they drew in actually, you know, represents what would have been there had they had the source text. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So what are we looking at here on this, this next slide? 1968 article by the, by the Tanners. Uh, in Dialogue Magazine, or, right? Or, or Hayward, Hayward and Tanner. In, in Dialogue, right? In Dialogue. Okay. Yes. And what you've got on the left-hand side is the is a reproduction of the drawing that we just saw. This is the this example of the circle. The 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 the, te the, the technical name for this is the Greek term hypocephalus, which is simply a fancy term for under the head. That's all that means. So this is the under the head thing. <laughs> Uh, because it's a little disc that's used like a pillow to raise your head up to cause you to ascend into the sky spiritually. So the right-hand qu quadrant is was broken off and missing, and Smith didn't have access to it. And so if he's going to use it as a drawing. He wants a complete thing. So what do you do? And so you'll notice there is a box that the Tanners have put or Hayward and Tanner, excuse me, have put with a little arrow going toward that square. And what you see is the falcon-headed sun god Ra with a sun disc on his head. There are two eyes of Horus on either side of him, the so-called Ujat eyes of protection, and he is in a boat. And that is in a rectangle because that rectangle is taken directly out of one of the columns of the Papyrus of Tasheret Min, which is Joseph Smith Papyrus number two, a totally separate manuscript for a different mummy that I alluded to, 
one of his other one of the other mummies. So we now have three different people that are coming with three different manuscripts, none of which could be together on the same scroll. So this particular image is from papyrus number two, which was never associated with, couldn't have been attached to, didn't belong to papyrus number one or the hoopocephalus, either one of them. But it's being used to fill in this slot arbitrarily. And if you look on the right-hand side, there you can see it filled in. And that's the way it's actually published. So the left is what's really in the archives, showing you what the scribes were working with as their manuscript, their working subject. And on the right is their end product. And the little boxes with arrows show you things that were filled in that were taken from other sources. So that the box at the bottom underneath this figure of Ray is additional text, but that one was taken from further columns of papyrus number one, the Book of Breathings of Hor. And the same is true with what you've got on the right-hand side where the section to, to fill the circle going around the edge. You can see there are boxes on the right-hand side, and those have been taken in from other sources also. All of it copied from different manuscripts that could never have all been together on the same piece. So the scribes just went looking in the Egyptian, where's a nice passage that looks pretty? Okay, we'll copy that in here. So what I'm telling you is that the image that we have for facsimile 2 is as doctored and artificial as the published version of facsimile 1. It has some parts that are real, and the rest, here, they instead of just making it up, which they did for facsimile one. That was just, okay, what could this be? Let's put a human head here. Here, they're going, okay, well, let's just borrow some Egyptian from somewhere else, which shows you two things. One, they didn't think anyone else would ever be able to figure that out. And two, they didn't realize that was a problem. And three, actually, it means they couldn't read it. Nobody could read it. Which we know is true because no no one could really understand Egyptian, you know, in New York at that time, right? Well, it's also particularly clear because Joseph Smith admits he can't read it. Because where he actually publishes it, we have annotations that we will get to where he has a very convenient out. Not to be read at this time. Right. Do you want to mention really quickly the writing that's kind of along the edges of this uh, of this hypocephalus? Yeah, it's uh, it's an inscription that runs around it's it around the circle. That's its own separate text. If you give me a second, let me just pull up my formal. Uh, so basically, so basically, listeners, I'll just describe this as, as Dr. Ritter's looking it up. In addition, in the facsimile to the various images uh, that are in different, let's just say, sections of the circle, you've got this text that's kind of written 
uh, around around the circle, uh, along the edges. Um, and because that was missing, Joseph Smith and his scribes would have had to fill in the writing uh, so that it becomes one continuous string of writing all allow around, let's just say, the circumference or the outer edge of the circle. While Dr. Ritter's looking that up, is there anything you want to add, RFM, to to uh, the, the description and, and what we've been talking about so far? No, I think you've done a great job. Um, and I'm trying to be cognizant of the fact that some people will just be listening to this without actually looking at the diagrams. If you are just listening to this, and that will be the only option available on the RadioFreeMormon.org website, I do encourage you to take the time to go back and look at the um, Mormon Stories uh, podcast version that actually has video and has these diagrams because that will be very helpful to you to understand what it is that Dr. Ritter's talking about. So the, so uh, the text says, I am the punisher in the mansion of the Binbin Bin and Heliopolis, greatly exalted, greatly effective, the copulating bull who has no equal, the great God in the mansion of the Binbin Bin and Heliopolis, come to the Osiris Sheshonk, the justified son of broken. He is that great God in the house of the noble. Okay, that's what the, it actually says. Okay, now, is I've that mentioned the word bin bin several times? That is the primordial mound that rose up out of waters at the beginning of time. That is part of the Egyptian understanding of Genesis, where the Creator God rises up on a little hillock that move, that moves out of the primordial waters. So, Doctor Rinder, that whole text that you just read is is what what remains of the circle. What's that? Say it again. You read it around the outer circle. The parts that are not missing, right? Part of that is missing, and part of it, uh, part of it is is restored. But the parts that you read have to be the parts that we can still read because the part that's missing we don't have. Right. Is that right? Uh, well, what what's missing is come to the Osiris Sheshonk, the justified son of. How do we know that if it's missing? Because this is a standard text that occurs around the ring of all of these. Got it. Okay. So we're able to find this like, text. Like the Book of the Dead, this is another standardized manuscript form. So I'll be able to show you in a moment what a normal one of these looks like that isn't broken. Okay. So so for the part that's missing. and so those I can restore that it's the name Sheshonk because that occurs somewhere else on the papyrus where it is not broken. Okay, so I'm just going to ask that this. Spot where, where the ring is gone, that's where you would be having the name of the tomb owner. But So I know it has to go in there, but, it would, but it's actually occurring to the left of the seated multi-headed god where his head is broken off. We'll get there. So, so Lam, okay. So, so the what they wrote in in place of the text that should have been there wrong is misplaced, and, and it has that that does not belong there. Do you know what it says? Did you already read to us what it I says? Do, uh, I'll have to go back and find that again. I have explained with that where it's, it's a patch taken from uh, 
papyrus number one. So just to make sure, we've we've got the the scribes and Joseph Smith writing in, filling out the the verbiage of the circle with language that has nothing to do with the actual circle itself. Is that fair to say? That's it's from a totally separate document, right? Okay. Should we go to the next? I have pointed out some of these things in in other places, but the the tanners get the get the credit. Or, or sorry, again, I keep forgetting. It's it's Tanner and uh, RFM. Help us out. Was it Hayworth or Haywood? Hayworth. Hayward. Okay. Okay. So, do you want to show us the next slide? Is that where we're going? Yes. Okay. Here's the next slide. Tell us what tell us what uh, we're seeing here. So there's an example where you can actually see the substitution. Um, the blank space there, and then here we have this figure of the sun god in his bark. And obviously that wasn't there. And the text that goes around the ring is obviously totally missing, but suddenly it has been resupplied. And if you look at the god seated in the middle that the baboons are worshiping, he has no head in the one, and on the right, he does, but you'll notice it's off kilter. Right. It's pushed to the right. It's and almost you know like. Why? No. Where did he get that head? From right above it, figure sure. Exactly. Exactly. So he just recopied it from directly above. <laughs> <laughs> did he wow. not recognize that that was a body? in uh, the, the lower picture, and is that why it's off to the right? Well, I think he didn't, I don't, I don't think he understood what was going on there. Because it's clearly in the wrong, it's restored in the wrong place. It doesn't hit the neck. Well, that's really profound that he just, they just reproduced the head of the figure above it and just copied and pasted it down below. Well, that's what, uh, the copying pasting, uh, like we would do now with, uh, with a typeset man or non-typeset manuscript digital manuscript is exactly what they were doing pick this put it here pick this put it here fill yeah. in the hole okay and as i had mentioned before in our previous comments before we started recording john and dr rittner in figure two the one that has the bottom right section of that panel that's obliterated in the original but now is filled in we have apparently added to that area to fill it out a depiction of the lotus stand, which we also find in facsimile one as well as in facsimile three. Yes, it's just been inserted here directly from facsimile one. So I'm just bringing up the fact that even in the facsimiles that we have, we have a known antecedent for this addition to the panel in figure two. Got it. Okay, so that 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 helps like us. Like you own two jigsaw puzzles that were both defective, and you just started mixing and matching pieces between them to fill in the holes, and you had to sort of bend the pieces to fit. That's what's going on. Okay, that's that's really important. Should we go to Something the next I slide? Do have to bring up here for journalistic yep. and apologetic integrity, though, the the reconstruction of Figure Three to have the the sun god with the sun disc over his head in the solar bark there, which was borrowed from another document. Dr. Rittner, would that be an appropriate um, restoration or replacement or figure to have in a hypocephalus? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And when we see an example, I'll show you that just to be fair, that would be the kind of thing that you would get. Uh, although it wouldn't necessarily look like that because this one is very specifically every single feature of this one, including the writing and the eye signs on either side of them is directly borrowed from book of the, the book of the dead of Tashirat men. So this is not what, this is not precisely what you would find. It's merely in the ballpark range. Okay. So are we saying that this is the right ballpark range, but no, it's not the precise symbol. All right. Can I, can I take any credit for Joseph Smith on this one? Um, yeah, they guess well. But then every single thing as you, that's preserved is a sun sign. So it's within the imagery. And that's what you expect. I'll take that as a yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Should we go to the next slide? So here's an example of just precisely that. This is one of the standardized uh, hoopacephali that's from the British Museum from a woman by the name of Tashert Khansu. Her name means the daughter of Khansu. And there you can see the text going around in the circle. And if you see the blown up, the, the full images on the left, that's the way it should look. And you'll notice the central figure really ought to have four heads, not two, and they ought to sit on his neck. In the upper right corner, you should have two boats. One of them is certainly the, the sun god, but he's not in a falcon form. It's actually there in a scarab form, a beetle. And you see him there. So it, it, it's, and, and there's not, they're not so standardized. You, you, you might have had something that looked like what the scribes filled in, except we know where they got that because it's taken specifically from something that's uh, also in the same corpus that Smith had. Now, immediately adjacent to these two boats, you can see the, the script that's going around the ring there. That's precisely the point where it says for Tashirat Kansu, the woman who owned this, it says made by for the housewife Tashirat Kansu, right there. So that is precisely where the name would be of the one that we were just looking at. But that's, of course, where it's broken away. But if you look at the publication, that breaking away where the name of Sheshonk would be has all been filled in. So uh, that's what you got there. Now, if you look just to see how this also works, and the below the god with four heads in the middle, you can see a cow upside down, and there's a figure, a female figure holding a lotus wand toward the cow. And there's a god seated with an erect penis, uh, the god Min, Ammon, uh, who's also shown upside down. And if we were to go back, you'll find those very same images are found on the example from of Sheshonk, the one that's in the Smith collection. Yeah, and we also don't have the head from the image at the top middle copied and pasted and reproduced onto the the figure in the middle, right? Uh, right, 
because they're different heads, and you notice that there's no floral stand next to the one at the top. Either. No floral stand, yeah. Can we go back for just a sec? Yeah, we can. So right here. Yeah, right, back back one more to okay. the to, to go, keep going. All right, bring that up. Uh, there you can see we have the, the if you look below the, the the seated central figure, there is a figure holding directly below is a figure holding the lotus and the upside down cow, and the figure seated on a throne with with a human and a bird body and holding an erect penis. All is right there in that row. So that, these are all standardized images that one would find, and you can see it in the complete example as well as in the Sheshonk example. So these would be, could be mass produced and you just fill in the name of the owner. So the imagery ought to be fairly consistent is what I'm saying. It's a standardized thing. They're not all going to be exactly the same. Scribes wouldn't always copy precisely, but they will be pretty similar. Yeah, we can go beyond now. Ben. That's that's all. That's all really clear. Um, that's all really clear. And like like you said, RFM. I guess it it is a little bit impressive that they've got a boat, right? Um, even though maybe it should be two boats or other other oh, things actually, represented. No, that's, 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 that's good. I'm, I'm uh, kudos. Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's what it should be. But that it's the, the thing is, I know where he got this particular boat. Right. <laughs> because it's elsewhere in the papyri. Right. Yeah. You know, in the same in the same way with the same hieroglyphs next to it. So it's a carbon copy. Right. Okay. So now we are to this slide. Is that where we are now? Now we can start talking about what Smith says these things mean. Okay, so really quickly, RFM, if you'll give us a little bit of context here. Do we do we have, you know, is there any, anything about the text of the actual book of Abraham that we that Joseph would want us to tie to um, facsimile two? Do you know what I'm asking? Yes, and actually I do because I was doing that research while you were talking. Excellent. There is actually a little bit. First off, if you open up and you find the the facsimile representation on the left side of the page, on the right side. You have explanations. By the way, when you look at the facsimile on the left side, above it is printed a facsimile from the book of Abraham. That's what Dr. Rittner was referring to earlier when he said that it is presented, even though it's on a completely, it's not even on a separate scroll. It's not even a scroll. It's a hypocephalus, right? Exactly. But still, it's designated in the text as being a facsimile from the book of Abraham. And that's why he was saying that that is incorrect, because that's where it is said that it is a facsimile from the book of Abraham when apparently it could not have been because it's not a facsimile from any book, much less the book of Abraham. But having said that, there's a lot of explanations that have a lot of strange sounding names that are represented as being in Egyptian. But there is definitely a connection between this facsimile two and chapter three of the book of Abraham because chapter three is, of course, where it goes into all the, well, outer space kind of descriptions of things and planets and and those sorts of things in the book of Abraham. But the first and most obvious one is where, figure one, where it talks about Kolob. Okay, and I say figure one of facsimile one and the explanation that's given. And the first thing it says is Kolob. 
And then it talks about where it is. It's uh, nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. And it goes on, it says a few other things about Kolob. And if you look at chapter three of the book of Abraham, uh, he talks about looking through the Urim and Thummim, and I saw the stars, right? And one of them was nearest unto the throne of God. Well, the throne of God is represented in facsimile two by the explanation. And then it goes on to say, the Lord said unto me, these are the governing ones. Governing ones are talked about in the explanations to facsimile two. And specifically, and the name of the great one is Kolob. So there is that connection. And then it talks about, I have set the uh, this one to govern all those which belong to the same order as that upon which thou standest. Now, when we're talking about orders of governing planets, that is referred to here in the, in the um, explanations of facsimile two. And finally, this is another interesting one, and I'm sorry, but it has to do with still figure one, where it says one day in Kolob is equal to a thousand years according to the measurement of this earth. You see that up there? Yeah. Well, it actually doesn't have the entire thing up there. It just has it in abbreviated form in this diagram, but that's what it says. It's much longer in the explanation. But that that hooks into Abraham chapter 3 and verse 4, the last part of it, talking about Kolob and how Kolob is, uh, after the manner of reckoning, it being 1,000 years according to the time appointed unto that which, unto that whereon thou standest, i.e. earth. This is the reckoning of the Lord's time according to the reckoning of Kolob. So at least in those those places, it is clear that there is a direct connection between the translation of facsimile 2 and the text that is provided, at least at the very beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Abraham, which largely seems to deal with the same sort of thing, which is planets and governing planets and this central planet near which God resides, Kolob. I'm done. Okay, okay perfect. So what you've helped us establish, RFM, is that Joseph Smith certainly gave us all the impression that whatever he wrote down in parts of what he wrote down in Abraham chapter three, he was he was pulling from what we would call facsimile two, which actually isn't a facsimile, it's a hypocephalus, right? Yes. And so we so we we know that he was looking at this and and we know that he produced text in the book of Abraham from this. Right. Now, and I don't want to steal any of Dr. Rittner's thunder. But if you look at the very bottom of the explanations, I know there's a, a movement afoot, I believe, to try and say that this is a revelation instead of a translation. You can't find it on that uh, graphic, but if you look in the actual scriptures that we have in the Pearl of Great Price Book of Abraham under the explanations of facsimile number two, you will find it goes through all these different figures. In the bottom, it says this, the above translation is given as far as we have any right to give at the present time. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to try and characterize what Joseph Smith presented as doing here as anything other than a translation. That's exactly what he calls it there. So Joseph and his scribes clearly call this a translation in their work. As yeah. they did facsimile one, right. and as we shall see they do with facsimile three. Right. Okay. So let's actually find out. Let's try and juxtapose now what Joseph said we are looking at versus what an Egyptologist who actually can read Egyptian and translate Egyptian, Dr. Robert Rittner, says that we're looking at. 
So if we go to uh, the hypo, hypo, hypocephalus and we go to figure one, um, Joseph calls that little area um, Kolob, the residence of God. Is that, in fact, what you are reading there, Dr. Robert Rinner? Uh, no, it's not. And uh, you forgive me, I'm going to pull up a plate that I can see on larger scale for my eyes uh, and not the screen. Because I, I want to look and see what the, the, his, uh, his full description, which is a, a, a massive paragraph here. So, uh, no, there is no such Egyptian word as kolob. It does not refer to any planet. The Egyptians did understand planets, but there, there's no one named it, Kolob. Okay, so what, it, what are we looking at if it's not Kolob, the residence of God? Number one. We are looking at the four-headed God of creation, the God of the four cardinal directions, and the four winds. This is the image which represents the world in its four directions. That's why he should have had four heads. And, that, and we see that he's only got two. And we see that in the image that we looked at previously. On the left now, we see the God with the four heads. If Joseph had rewritten, had, had filled in correctly what was missing in the hypocephalus, we would have seen the four heads there. But because they were missing, they drew in, again, by copy and pasting the head of the God above or the figure above down to the figure below. Um, you know, we're not even seeing those four heads. But if we had been seeing the original, we would see four heads. And that would be the god named what, Dr. Ritter? Uh, probably Amun-Ra. Okay, and, and whoever interpreted this image has the god Kanumu. Um, god Knum? Yeah, and, and that's again whoever made this uh, interpretation. Yeah, that I don't, I can't tell you. Okay, well, it's not even there, so it's hard to say what what it should be. Um, hey, John, can I bring up something please. before you go to number two? I'm please. sorry, I know we're never going to get through at this rate, but this is really interesting to me. Kolob is what Kerry Muelstein, he cites it as a bullseye for Joseph Smith, not because it's Egyptian for anything, but because the root KLB in Hebrew can mean middle. Or center. Now he doesn't go into any uh, great lengths to talk about why a Hebrew word for something is present in an Egyptian hypocephalus. But if you'll put that image back up there on the um, on the screen, there, John. Yes. This is where it has led to this idea that Kolob is in the center of the universe. Have you ever heard that, John Delin? Absolutely. It's because it means middle or center. In Hebrew, at least according to Kerry Mulesey, and I expect he's right about that much, but I can't help noticing where figure one is that it's identified as Kolob. Where is it? Well, it's in the center. It's in the very center of the hypocephalus. Right. So Joseph Smith took Hebrew that he learned from Joshua Satius in 1836. Kolob, KLB means center, and he identifies the center of the hypocephalus as being Kolob, the residence of God. 
because maybe that is kind of throne like looking when when you're you're looking at that figure. Is that maybe it? Oh, I'm just saying that even more obviously, he's identifying the center of the hypocephalus. Right, right, right. It's a word that means center in Hebrew. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, he's clearly letting Hebrew influence him. And I've, I've had colleagues inform me that Smith had the resources of an Ashkenazi uh, Hebrew scholar. I assume that's who you mentioned. And so, yes, Joshua Shashis. He came and taught Hebrew to the School of the Prophets in 1836. So that's 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 where that bit of information came from, and that's why he would have identified him with this figure. I think so. There, there is no Egyptian writing there next to him that says any such thing. Right. Okay, so for figure two, um, Joseph Smith, so so sort of at, at 12 o'clock, the, the figure around 12 o'clock of the image, Above above the center, Joseph Smith wrote, stands next to Kolob, called by the Egyptians Oliblish, which is the next grand governing creation near to the celestial or the place where God resides, holding the key of power also pertaining to other planets as revealed from God to Abraham as he offered sacrifice upon an altar which he built had built unto the Lord. Is any of that what you're reading in figure two, Dr. Ridner? What figure two actually says, it, the text is broken because it, it breaks off on that right-hand side, uh, the original one. Right. Going from the original, what it says is, the name of that great God, break right where the name would be. And do we, do we know what the God is? We don't know who the God is because there's no name. The standard that he's holding has a little jackal on it, and this is not the god Anubis, but a god named Wepwawet, who, who is used to be the herald at the beginning of processions. So the little jackal god on a stick is Wepwawet, but the god behind him, the name is not preserved here. It, it's, it would have been, because it says the name is, but then break. It's like the, uh, the you know the missing thing in a Agatha Christie movie where someone says, "And the killer is," and then drop dead. Okay, all right. So no, we don't have a name because because we, the name is. What I can assure you is it was not Obelish. <laughs> How can you assure us of that? <laughs> that sounds like the Doctor Seuss uh, children's book Obelik. What about the word Abraham? That it, fell from heaven. What about the word Abraham? Is that anywhere there in that little section? No, I couldn't find it. I looked. <laughs> okay. What about sacrifice upon an altar? Is that anywhere in there? No, and there's no altar except that, of course, he's added. Well, he's added in <laughs> the, uh, the stand with the flower, which, if you will remember, in the uh, facsimile one, he labeled as representing Abraham in Egypt. So he's taking, he's stuck it from here in a cut and paste. We're giving it essentially the same meaning it had in facsimile one. So he filled in something that he thought looked like an altar from a totally different part of, of a different, yeah, of, of a papyrus. Well, the altar he didn't understand, but here, but we're calling it altar. He didn't know it was altar. He called it Abraham in Egypt. And so where he's getting his reading of Abraham is from this flower stand that he himself has inserted there and was would never have actually been there got it 
So I'm only putting Abraham in on the basis of his own insertion. Okay. From a different manuscript, and we know from the parallels it wouldn't have been there. So it's completely wrong, 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 and wrong. Dr. Rittner, I apologize again for inserting this here, but I want to give Joseph Smith every opportunity to be proven a true prophet. If you look at figure one, the explanation, it does talk about an Egyptian word there at the end where he says, Yah-O-Eh. Do you see that there? Yeah. It's obvious that he is representing this as actually being an Egyptian word. Does that mean anything in Egyptian? It's an attempt at saying Yahweh. Did the Egyptians say Yahweh? Uh, The Egyptians would have sounded it out, but it would have sounded like Yahweh because they're borrowing the the Hebrew. So again, this is simply coming in from Hebrew. I'm sorry, the same thing with figure two. He also presents something that's supposed to be Egyptian, and that's that stands next to Kolob, called by the Egyptians, Oli Blish. There is no such Egyptian phrase or word. All right, so that would be apparently incorrect. That is completely incorrect. Okay. So we're over over two on this on this image on this hypocephalus, which he calls a facsimile. And we've got one Hebrew from the other. Okay. All right. So figure three, which we know he's he's copied and pasted from a totally different papyrus, right? Um, what well, because yeah, because figure three would have been drawn in or or copied and pasted from a different totally different document entirely, right? We've already established that. Yes. Excuse me. I'm shuffling images, but my my laptop is so small it's hard for me to read the tiny details on that picture. So it's the man. It's the man sitting on the boat. Um, that 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 he. Oh that, sure, yeah. That's that's raw. That's that that's yeah. And so he called it, is made to represent God sitting upon his throne, clothed with power and authority, with a crown of eternal light upon his head, representing also the grand keywords of the holy priesthood, as revealed to Adam in the Garden of Eden, as also to Seth, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham, and all to whom the priesthood was revealed. Now, now we know that um, this does this image doesn't even belong in this hypocephalus, but let's just say that he was still translating that little fragment that he pulled from elsewhere. Do you see, uh, Robert Ridner, in that little section three, the word Noah, the word Seth, the word Melchizedek, the word Abraham, Garden of Eden, Adam, Holy Priesthood, any of those things in that little section three? Uh, the only thing that I can see in there is a, the crown of eternal light, that is the sun disk, which is sitting on the God's head. Well, what about all those other things I just read that Joseph found in there? Other than other than the, the visible circle of the sun, nothing. So none of those words appear in that third section? Not one. Okay. So, but, but light on top of a head, he did get right. He recognized the circle as representing the sun disk. RFM, anything you want to add about figure three? Are there any words in that figure? There are some fragments of words that are taken over from the Book of the Dead, but they're not whole words. They're just bits and pieces. There was what happened to be next to this image on the other papyrus. 
Okay, and you're not able to read those then? Because they're incomplete. Okay. On either side of the seated god, there's a fancy eye sign, which is a protective hieroglyphic symbol that means, that's Ujat, which means uh, health, security, safety. Oh, really, does it? So is it possible to it's interpret the, any of that? It's the eye of Horus. Mm-hmm. Like health in the navel, marrow in the bones, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, RFM? <laughs> well, I'm just proving that Joseph Smith is a prophet because what he said here is that it represents, uh, what was it, figure three? The grand keywords? Yeah, is also uh, the grand keywords of the holy priesthood. <laughs> Was revealed to Adam in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> and all those other guys to whom the priesthood was revealed. I mean, I don't want to go too much further into it because you know I am bound by blood oaths. But seriously, health, I don't know anything. Marrow is not implied necessarily here, but but health, yes. Okay, health in the navel, though perhaps. Navel, no navel, but health. But I mean, okay. but again, RFM, what you're doing, and I know you're kind of joking, but you're basically just trying to take anything that sounds Mormon or Mormonish or related to the temple ceremony and and imposing it on any images you can find. Isn't that kind of what you're doing on behalf of apologists? Am I doing that? Well, I guess uh, it probably seems that way, and it probably actually is that way. But when Dr. Rittner said that one of that these uh, wedget eyes can represent health, it did occur to me. So that's all I was following up on. Yeah. Okay. And and you know, it, 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 I mean, uh, the way I'm thinking about it is like, yeah, the you know the Mormon plan of salvation talks about a sun and a moon and a star, and so if we can find anything in here that has a sun, which would be any circle, then we could say Joseph Smith had a sun and the sun represents the celestial kingdom and the plan of salvation. But just because Joseph can identify some type of symbol that then can translate into some type of meaning in some part of his theology does not mean that in any way, whoever created this hypocephalus, hypocephalus was in fact trying to communicate the plan of salvation to whoever would read it, right? <laughs> no, I think that what we're dealing with here is actually the, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, which is where you've got actually hundreds of interpretations just among these three facsimiles. Maybe hundreds is too many, but there's a whole lot of them. To find something that's very general, that can then be used generally to look at something else that's related to Mormonism, is probably not an effective way of determining whether Joseph Smith was actually translating these accurately. Yeah, I'm with you. But it's nice for you to to try and uh, represent the arguments of the apologists anyway. I'm, I'm in there pitching. <laughs> okay, and I'm sorry you can't see this, Dr. Ridner, but now we're on to figure four, which on our image is sort of like a bird with it's some sort of boat. Uh, what's that? Bird in a boat. Yeah, so Joseph says, answers to the Hebrew word rao kiyang, signifying expanse, or the firmament of the heavens, also a numerical figure in Egyptian, signifying 1,000, answering to the measure of the time of ob, ob, oliblish, which is equal with kolab in its revolution and in its measuring of time. Did Joseph get that image right? That's a lot of words for a bird in a boat, Dr. Ritter. <laughs> 
Um, yes, well, there's no actual text that goes with this. There's no hieroglyph there. It's just simply the picture. And it represents the god Sokar in his bark. Sokar is a god of Saqqara. That's where the name comes from, which is the burial place outside of Memphis in Egypt near Cairo. He is the god of the cemetery there. Uh, he is the god of inertness, the stage of death just before life. And he's often considered to be an aspect of the god Osiris. Um, other copies add variants of his epithet, Ba, Bao, Bao, uh, the Ba spirit of the Ba spirits, etc. But there's no text here. Okay. But Joseph is finding... You know, there's no oblish and There's no Raukiang, which he admits is Hebrew, another example of intrusion of Hebrew, which occurs over and over again in this. What about the number of thousand? Uh, it has is, nothing is it, to do. He is he is a god who's referred to as chronic, that's to say he's of the earth. So he is not heavenly, he's earthly. How about the number of thousand? Can you find that anywhere for us, Dr. No, Rittner? No, absolutely not. Has nothing to do with the heavens. Okay. Bummer. Okay, 0 for 4 ish. Number five, if we're looking at number five, we are looking at the cow, the upside down cow below the center, immediately below. Um, Joseph calls the upside down cow. Uh, it's called in Egyptian, Enish Go Andash. So he's getting very specific here. This is one of the governing planets also. I don't know why he's calling a cow a governing planet. And is said by the Egyptians to be the sun and to borrow its light from Kolob through the medium of Kai e Vanrush, which is the grand key, or in the other words, the governing power, which governs 15 other fixed planets or stars, as also flows sea or the moon or the earth and the sun, annual revolutions. Planet receives its power from the medium of I almost feel like I'm not looking at the right image because how in the world is he getting all this from an upside-down cow? RFM, help me out here. He goes on to have these... Because, because Joseph Smith believed that a single Egyptian character could be translated into large expanses of text. But I mean, it says this planet receives its power through the medium of Cleflos Is S or Hako Kao Beam. The stars represented by numbers 22 and 23 receiving light from the revolutions of Kolob. He gets all that from an upside down cow and I'm just <laughs> not seeing it. It's only upside down if you're looking at it wrong side up, John. <laughs> just turn it. Well, let me let me tell you what's right about that. Okay. That's, <laughs> okay. that's the shorter answer. Uh, in Egyptian mythology, when the sun god departed from the world of humans, he rose up on the back of a sky cow. The goddess Hathor manifested herself as a cow. She put him between her horns and she rose up into the sky. So the Egyptians can depict the sky in the form of a giant cow. On, and it is on the back of the cow that the sun god rides. That's why the cow is on this sun disk. Because if you look at the thing, what's happening is it's depicted as 
the sun is what 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 we're understanding here with this image. The reason the cow's upside down is the the round circle of the disc itself, the piece of papyrus, is the sun, and it's on top of the cow who's carrying it, and the god she's carrying is also the four-headed deity in the center who's labeled number one. So everything on this disc is related to the sun and the sky, but the cow is not a planet. None of those names are meaningful Egyptian. None of the numbers are right. And the cow is simply representing the whole body of the heaven itself. And the goddess who we will get to, uh, I think we get to her, uh, right behind the cow, who has who is shown full face and is holding a lotus. That's the goddess Hathor in one of her in her manifestation in, in female human form. So these are two depictions of the sky goddess, and they're placed center, supporting the whole disc. So they're acting as the fulcrum on which the disc rests. Because when the mummy's got his head on this, they will then be right under the center of the head of the mummy, spiritually lifting him up onto the sky. And that whole paragraph I got out of two pictures. So it is possible to get a (laughs) two-paragraph explanation, but it's not text, it's explanation from mythology. Right. That's the way an apologist for the Egyptian religion would work. So Enishko Ondosh, which is called in figure five explanation to be Egyptian, is that Egyptian? No. In no way, shape, or form. What about Clarflas Is S or Hauko Kau Beam? Is that Egyptian? About as Egyptian as Mugu Gai Pen. <laughs> well, you know up there where it says F-L-O-E-E-S-E, John? Can you see that? Flossy. I think it's Flossy. Flossy. I think he's identifying the cow as Flossy. I think that's a hit. <laughs> but seriously, uh, to get closer to this. So Joseph Smith identifies the cow as the sun. As I'm understanding you, that's not exactly right. It's not the, the sun at all. It's the heaven, the holding the sun. That holding the sun, right. But that's that's about as close as he's gotten so far, I think, right? Yeah, acknowledging that it has something to do with the sky is correct. Okay. But when you're dealing with the afterlife, you're probably going to be right if you call something having been related to the sky or, or the heavens, right? <laughs> I think when you got excommunicated, you lost the spirit of God completely, John. <laughs> <laughs> He's such an apostate. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Guilty. It was close. It was very close. But unfortunately, these words that are represented as being Egyptian and specifically so apparently end up not being Egyptian at all. It's just, it's just, it's just gibberish, really. All right. Let's move to figure six. Figure six is to the left of the upside down cow. And those look familiar, uh, Dr. Ridner. It looks like. Those four figures that we got from facsimile one. Do you want to? So Joseph says, represents this earth in its four quarters. What are those four figures and what do they represent, Dr. Ridner? All right. Well, this is going to take some time. Let's go to the next slide. All right. Um, 
We have seen those four individuals before, although when we saw them, we only saw their heads on jug bodies. Here, they are shown as full standing mummy form figures with bodies. These are the same as the canopic jars that are on facsimile one. The description in facsimile one was that they are the idolatrous gods of Elkina and other places. Here, they represent the earth in its four quarters. It does not seem to be the case that Smith and his scribes realized that this were actually the same images. We know them now because these are so well represented in every collection in museums of canopic jars so that the image I showed last time from Wikipedia showed them in standing mummy form just like they are here. And they're same order, same everything. They are the canopic children. Now, what I'm showing you now, for those who can see it, uh, it will be of limited value, but it will make my point, maybe. This is from the cobbled together from the basic Egyptian dictionary that we use to read hieroglyphs. This is the traditional Egyptian known as the Wörterbuch, which is just the German word for dictionary. And here are the entries for the four sons of Horus in the order that they actually appear. These are their real names. The name of the first one with the human head is Imseti, and his description is at the top. For those of you interested in knowing what an Egyptian dictionary would look like for modern scholars, you get the transliteration. That is to say, at the far left column, we put it in letters that we can read in Englishish letters, followed by the way it would look in actual hieroglyphs. Then you get the block of definition, and you get variant examples of how it can also be written. That's the way this works. So it's your quickie introduction to how to look up an Egyptian text. Now, unfortunately for the viewer who can see this slide, the dictionaries in Egyptian are primarily in German because it was the Germans who really in large measure began the work on the language in the field after Champollion. So what we have here in the inscription, and I'm squinting so that I can actually see my tiny screen, it says one of the, the son, a son of Horus. Um, especially for a protection god for the dead and for the internal organs. What you'll notice, it does not say in that definition of what the core elements of what this God is, is that it has anything to do with directions. The next God is the baboon-headed God, whose name is Hopi, and it has the same description. One of the sons of Horus, especially for a protective God for the dead and the internal organs. Then we have the, the uh, jackal-headed god, Duamutef, whose name, by the way, means the one who protects his mother. And we have the same description. No reference to a cardinal point. 
And then finally, our last god who has the falcon head, his name is Kebech Sinuef, the one who refreshes his brother, whose brothers, plural. Uh, and again, the same description and no reference whatsoever in this pivotal basic dictionary definition that these have anything to do with the cardinal points. Let's go to the next slide. So still from the dictionary of the Egyptian language, what I'm showing you here are four different pages from different volumes of the nine volume dictionary that actually do give you the words for the cardinal directions. And they are in the order the Egyptians always give them because the Egyptians put south at the top of their maps because they looked toward the direction the Nile came from. That's how they oriented themselves. They didn't put north at the top. So south, the word is resi. You'll notice it's not any of those four sons of Horus and you don't see those figures there in the hieroglyphs. North, Mehti doesn't look like anything that we just saw. East, Yabtet doesn't look like anything we saw. And West, Yemintet doesn't look like anything we saw. If the Egyptians wanted to indicate the four corners of the universe, they would use either the god who's at the center of the Hupocephalus that's got four heads, or they would use these hieroglyphs which are clearly not what's there in the text. I want to draw your attention also while we've got it, as well as you're getting your, your basic hieroglyph lesson. The last entry under East shows the writing for East and it's added a little snake. The German definition there tells you that that actually says goddess of the East. That is a real personification of the East in divine form. That's what it looks like. Look at the last example for West. There you have the word for West with a little snake determinative. That snake goddess is the actual personification of the earth in its Western corner. So that's what you would have had if you wanted to do that and not the four sons of Horus. You'll notice they're not in the basic dictionary. They're not used for the basic words for south and north. And they're not in the representation even as the personified deities. And I'm not done yet. So next slide. Now, there is a text that is referenced by some to show that there is a link between the four sons of Horus and the four cardinal directions. And I would agree with that. Because anytime you have a group of four, it automatically, in Egyptian symbolism, as in symbolism of almost any culture, if you have four, it's going to represent the four corners of the, of the earth, which are based on our four sensory directions of our body, front, back, left, and right. So it's basically just our body projected onto the world. That's why there's four and not five or six. Uh, so even though there's no text that specifically says this God equals this equals that, north, south, east, west, 
so much so that it's not in the dictionaries or anywhere else. We have one text from Medinet Habu, where the Oriental Institute has been excavating for as long as, and copying for as long as we have existed. It is our temple. And there are reused blocks there that are from an earlier reign. The temple of Medinet Habu is for Ramses number three. But there are reused blocks from Ramses number two that are inserted within it as fill, basically cut and paste. And we have here a text that John Gee has cited, as have others. And I'm showing you what I've taken directly out of John's article that I was able to get from the internet. So we have our depiction, our Oriental Institute depiction on the left. The relevant parts are highlighted by John in red. And John's somewhat inaccurate translation is on the right. And so let me read to you what it actually says. And it's in the, I'm only going to read the red block. Um, and again, you've got a translation from John on the right. It's not, it's not wrong, it's just not complete. What it actually says is, Imseti, go quickly to the south so that you might say to the gods of the south that Horus, the son of Isis, son of Isis, has taken the great white crown and the red crown. The king of upper and lower Egypt, Usarmat Ra, Setepen Ra, Ramses II, has taken the great white crown and the red crown. Um, that's what is actually going on there. And then it is followed by Hopi, and then the same thing. You'll notice it's in multiple horizontal columns. So it goes Imseti, Hopi, Duamutef, uh, and Kebesinoef, go quickly to, first one to the south, next to the north, next to the east, next to the west, so that you might, to, to the gods of those areas, so that you might announce the accession of the king. So that's the core of what it actually says. And what, what does that actually mean? Let's think about that for a moment. If you're saying to Imseti, go quickly to the south to say to the gods of the south this announcement, you're not saying that Imseti is a god of the south. You're saying he has to go to the gods of the south. He's not representing the south. They are. He's merely the messenger who's sent there. So, yes, there's a link so that each of these gods is being sent to a place, but they are not the representative of the place themselves. If Hopi has to be sent to the gods of the north, then clearly he's not the gods of the north, right? He's the messenger. So all we have here is a referential link that that's where they're going, not that that's what they actually are and what they, 
what they are are the number four, and so they have a link to the chord, the coordinates. They are not the representations of themselves. That's not just splitting hairs. We have here a reference to the gods of the north, south, east, and west. And these four kids are not those. It's merely where they're it's those directions are simply their assignments. And we're not done yet either, because let's see what the implications of this are. Now, back in facsimile one, where we have these are listed, the various canopic jars are listed as the gods, right? So let's take the god number five on facsimile one. I hope I'm not losing anyone. It's Falcon, right? That's the falcon. That's the far back. So the falcon on the back is the god of Elkena, according to Joseph Smith's interpretation, as explicitly stated on facsimile one. So now we go see, we know that happens to be Kebesinuef. So now let's look about let's look at what it says about Kebesenuef in John Gee's article, where he's claiming that this particular inscription proves the validity of facsimile one. You have to bear with me here. So Kebesenuef is the last god mentioned in the red square in this Egyptian text you're reading from right to left. So he's the vertical column at the far left, at the upper left edge of the box. So it says, Kebeh Senoef, go hurriedly to the west so that you might say to the gods of the west that Horus, the sun, etc., has received the great white crown and the red crown and the king Ramses has done so, etc., so where is Kebech Sinoef going? And what direction is Kebech Sinoef associated with? Clearly, explicitly, the west of Egypt, right? Couldn't be any clearer. Because the word for west is written in the unambiguous word for west. And in John's translation, he recognizes that there is no objection that that is going that god is going to the west and therefore if that god is the god of the west and he is the god of elkena where is elkena east <laughs> it <laughs> has to be libya and so this is saying in facsimile 1 and in the book of Abraham's text which describes all of these activities at Elkena where the Egyptians are in control and Abraham has free movement that Abraham is in fact wandering through Libya that is the logical deduction of the evidence that John he has authorized and insisted is accurate. And there is no other logical explanation except by a simple process of rational deduction 
if this God is this place, and this is an accurate equation of a God with a known direction, and here it is, this is the one text that makes it explicit, and John Gee sanctions it, and that direction is west, and that God has to be Elkena, and Elkena has to be where that God goes, then Elkena has to be west, and the west of Egypt can't be Syria. It has to be Libya. And the last time I looked at any of the accounts of Abraham, the ones that are coming from mystical traditions or anywhere else, none of them put him with sheep in Libya or without the sheep. And when I had said East earlier, Dr. Rettner, I was referencing some attempts by apologists to make it the God of Canaan. Well, it would still be a problem if, in fact, it's Kebesinoeth. It would. For the very reasons that John has trumpeted, proving over and over again in multiple discussions, lectures, and articles available on the Internet, which is where I downloaded his images, that this has to be equivalent to the god of this site, and it has to be a Kebesinoeth. I didn't draw those relations. John did. And the only logical explanation that anyone can draw from A equals goes to B goes to C is that this has to be on the west of Egypt. And so Abraham, if the text of Abraham is true, all of the events, every single thing he's describing is taking place in modern Libya. I think what you've illustrated is a good example of something that I see sometimes with Mormon apologetics, Dr. Rittner, and that is they will take the four sons of Hyrus in facsimile one, as John Gee has done recently in his article at The Interpreter and elsewhere, and try and find some kind of connection to Joseph Smith's names for these four deities in Mesopotamia or uh, among the Hittites or anywhere he can find something that is remotely close and call that a bullseye. Now, separate from that, he'll take the same four sons of Horus from facsimile two and talk about them being the four cardinal directions based upon that one inscription, as I understand it, that you presented there, um, where they're not really representing the four cardinal directions. They're simply sent with the message of the crowning of the new king to the gods who do represent the four cardinal directions, correct? That is correct. And if you leave it there and don't go any further... You're safe enough as a Mormon apologist, but what I hear you doing is actually taking those conclusions and those arguments to their logical conclusion. Well, this is what I'm arguing, is that you can't look at something for just one little piece. You have to see the whole coherent picture. And if the evidence doesn't all fit together, then, the, then you have problems. But you can't present only a part of a picture and ignore all the rest. And if I could go off while we were on COLA, before we get out of this, I'm becoming bizarrely familiar with chapter three of the book of Abraham, because in there, there is another heavenly body in 13. And I'm going to read it, if I could, for just a moment. And he said unto me, this is 
Shinneha, which is the sun. Now, there are discussions by John Gee, who has referred to this today in, well, I, I heard it today in his recent podcast from last week, saying that this is a hit as an example of an Egyptian term which represents the ecliptic of the sun that is referred to in certain specific time periods, and it's a technical Egyptian term. And I discovered that Shineha even has its own web page on Wikipedia saying basically the same thing, and I assume it was an apologist who represented that. Now, the problem with that is that there is a collection of Egyptian words that could come out sounding like Shineha. It would actually be Shin-neha, which would mean, if you put them together, the circuit of eternity. And that would seem to be a real hit. Shin-neha versus Shin-neha. Now, the problem with that is, does this term actually exist? So, okay, we've thrown some sounds together. And if you throw enough sounds together, you could get accidental sounds that sounds like something Egyptian. So the question is not, as the apologists have posed it, if we make this sound, could it sound like something cobbled together in Egyptian? The question is, does such an Egyptian term even exist? You know, where is the proof? They don't go there because they don't. And so I asked one of my colleagues to search in the Thesaurus Linguae Egyptiae, or otherwise known as the TLA, our, our reference work that includes all of the published Egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions. So he did a global search for the number of times that the words Shin, circuit, and Nehe are put next to each other. Then he did a search to see the number of times that they are closer than 10 words apart. The number of hits he got was zero. What I'm saying is there is not a single case of where shin occurs as a combination, not one. There's not even a case where shin is 10 words next to Neha. So the combination of Shin-Neha to represent the sun or anything else is a total fabrication. It's an accidental coincidence of sounds, but it's unsupported by any evidence whatsoever. And so the work being done to say, look, look what we can come up with is where you take something and you want to find an answer for it. It's not where you actually go to the evidence and then create an answer saying, ah, the evidence shows you this. Because the evidence shows just the opposite. And that's the way apologists work. It's the way they always work. So it sounds to me like you're saying John Gee does not know Shineha from Shinola. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. If we can go back just for a second, and this is just a personal note about... Was that clear? Which part? What I just was explaining about Shinneha. It actually was to me. Was it to you, John? Yep, I, I, I think so. He's making stuff up. He's taking two words that sound sort of 
uh, like these parts, two words, separate words, not attested in any Egyptian source as being together or, or even being within 10 words of each other and combining them together to create a made up word to uh, represent something that sounds like Sheneha, but still isn't the sun. It's just the ecliptic along which the sun progresses and calling it a bull's well, I, I have no idea where he got this notion it's the ecliptic because if the word doesn't exist, how does the concept? Uh, you got me there, but I did hear him talking about that just as you did. On the four corners of the earth and these four sons of Horus, is that one description that you were talking about before, is that the only reference to the four sons of Horus and four corners of the earth at all? It's the only explicit one that I know, and it's the only one John Gee could point to in his article on the four sons of Horus and the cardinal directions. Okay, well, here's my personal thing, is that I did not know that that was the only place, and for years, as a Mormon apologist, I took at face value the claim that Joseph Smith, representing the four sons of Horus as the four cardinal directions, or specifically the earth in its four quarters, which is what he says, was an absolute bullseye. I took John Gee's word for that. I don't know if Hugh Nibley said it before him, but John Gee certainly said it, and I represented that to many people in defense of the Book of Abraham as a bullseye for it. And now that I find what is the real scholarly foundation for it, it seems to me very weak. It doesn't hold up. And I find that what I was telling other people was incorrect and that what John Gee had told me was not correct. Well, as I said, there is a link because it, it, if, you, if you go back to the slide that we had that was labeled burial, there happens to be a footnote in there where I'm talking about the breaking up of these voodoo dolls and you put them in the four corners. And I have a footnote there. Uh, oh, actually it's, it's maybe, maybe it's on, I'm sorry, it's not under burial, it's the previous one, human sacrifice. Look at my footnote 750 for those of you who can. By virtue of its association with the cardinal directions, four is the most common symbol of completeness in Egyptian numerological symbolism and ritual repetition. For the common ritual use of four enemy figures, see, for example, blah, 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 although four is the expected number, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so what I'm saying is they use four all the time for all sorts of things. So yeah, we have four different prisoner figures that represent the four directions. You can have four chests. When you bury someone in, a, in an excavated tomb, there are, in Book of the Dead 151, spells for four specific bricks that are put in the four corners of the room, which are associated with four goddesses. All of these things represent the four corners of the universe. So, if you're saying, can these canopic jars do that? The answer is, yeah, so can any four figures. And all these ritual figures are multiple. There, look at my note. And there, I'm actually, I'm not talking about Book of Mormon, and I'm not talking about the, the uh, canopic jars, just another group of four. So any group of four, that applies to. So, in a way, uh, Nibley's idea is not inaccurate, and I've noticed that the Wikipedia page 
the same one I showed last time, the bottom half does actually give you directions associated with the four sons of Horus. Uh, that wasn't apparent in that slide because I didn't photograph that part of it. But where do those directions come from? They come from the relief I just now showed you. So make of it what you will. Dr. Rittner, I don't know if you had covered this before, but before we leave the Four Sons of Horus, I know you had meant to. You tell me if you did. Um, you had mentioned that they appear in facsimile one. They're labeled as the idolatrous gods and each of them given a name. And then in facsimile two, they appear again standing up, the same four uh, Sons of Horus. But now it appears that Joseph Smith was unaware that these were the same figures as appeared in facsimile one. Had you commented on that? Uh, I didn't. I had not in print, I don't think. And I meant just in this podcast. I, I believe I did just a few minutes ago. Yes. Okay. The other thing, of course, the other problem is if they are the same when we know they are, then those four different place names would have to be in four different directions, too. So they couldn't all be concentrated in Syria. So they couldn't all be encountered by Abraham. It wouldn't be simply that Kebesinoef was, was, you know, off in uh, Libya, but one of them would be down in Nubia. So how do you account for that? Abraham was, a, was apparently a very good wandering fellow. <laughs> he encountered all of these gods in all of these places. How can you have something that's representing places he went and gods of the four corners? Right. I'm sure John will have an answer, and I'm looking forward to hearing that. Oh, he probably will. But uh, the basic thing that I think I would wanted to point out, and maybe you had already, is that it does appear that Egyptologists today immediately recognize the four canopic jars in facsimile one as being the same four individuals in figure six of facsimile two. But it does not appear, at least from what we can tell of the translations given by Joseph Smith, that he recognized them to be the same four beings. No, but I suspect that if you look in the editions of facsimile one and facsimile two by John Gee, Michael D. Rhodes, and Hugh Nibley, they will make the link. So they recognize that they're the same. So it's not just a question of Egyptologists understanding this. It's so well known that anyone who just looks at the Wikipedia page, which is why I brought that up last time, this is, com this is essentially now common knowledge. People recognize this. Uh, we have school children who come in on museum trips to our galleries. They can point these things out. It's something that's, that's taught now. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, nothing like that was known in the 1800s. So our, our world is quite different, and anyone now with computer access can learn all about the details of Egyptian uh, religion and iconography. But obviously, there was no way. I mean, we can't fault Joseph Smith for not knowing who these were. Uh, I'm merely faulting him for making up a translation. Got it. Had you said everything that you wanted to say about the four sons of Horus, Dr. Rittner? I think, I, I think I've talked them to death. Okay, so so coming back to to the image for a second, we were pointing people to section six of the hypocephalus, which has those 
for um, uh, Sons of Horus, which which were on the Canopic Jars in facsimile one. Um, and and of course, you know, we've already mentioned that uh, in facsimile two, uh, Joseph Smith called these representing uh, this earth in its four quarters. And everything that we just said before is a really long way of of then allowing you, Dr. Rittner, to tell us in the context of this hypocephalus, what would those four figures represent um, as you would read this in the context of the hypocephalus, Dr. Rittner? Well, these are the protective spirits for the body of the deceased. Okay. It's that simple. Uh, that's... I mean, perhaps the number four, perhaps this is one case where there, the number four might be the four directions, except there's no specific implication that that's the case. Okay. Except, we're, we're, in other words, we're getting that notion not from some inscription, not from something that's inherent in those gods, but merely because of the fact that there are four of them. Yeah. So the interpretation is coming from four. If if they were four Twinkies, <laughs> come up with the same thing. In other words, it's not the thing itself, but merely how many of them there are. And and that's I just the kind of argumentation you need to use when you're trying to understand what the symbolism is. It has to be intrinsic in the figure, and not just how many of them there are. And I, I would like to make a process observation at this point, kind of a meta observation. So we don't know if Abraham really existed. We know that Joseph got the names, you know, the purposes and the names of the scrolls wrong. We know that he got facsimile one totally wrong. We know that he's got facsimile two totally wrong. We know that in the case of both facsimile one and facsimile two, that they've drawn in completely erroneous or copied and pasted completely erroneous portions, um, you know, into facsimile two in this case from from totally different documents to to fill in the holes like like in every possible way this is really an absurd discussion which is why most egyptologists would probably avoid this discussion altogether but here we have the apologists saying oh my gosh here's a big hit there's four you know, figures in a part of this hypocephalus that represent the four corners. And so now what we've done is we've taken an entire probably 30 minutes to 45 minutes of our podcast digging into this really deep sort of detail or minutia about why those four figures may or may not represent north, south, east, west, uh, when in reality we would probably lose most of our listenership because A, they're listening, not viewing, and B, their eyes and ears are glazing over as they are trying to follow the technical language that we're talking about. And the reason why I'm bringing all this up, Dr. Rittner, is not to be um, un ungrateful for your amazing expert time with us, but it's to, it's to sort of highlight the game that apologists play. When Dallin H. Oaks met with apologists a few years back, he said, we don't have to, you know, th this is me paraphrasing. He basically said, uh, it's not that we have to give accurate, complete, precise answers. What we have to do is give answers. And if we can get 
this again, this is my interpretation of what he's basically told the apologists. But if we can just get fancy PhD level Yale Egyptologists to give a plausible um, hit, um, and we'll throw a thousand. We'll let John Gee and Gary Molstein. We'll pay their salaries. We'll let them fly all over. We'll let them use fancy Egyptian jargon and their interpretations of scrolls. If we can just have them throw a hundred hits at any curious questioning Mormon, we'll th we'll throw all these interpretations at them. They'll get lost in the back and forth between these non-credible Egyptologists and a credible Egyptologist like um, like Dr. Ridner or a really brilliant um, amateur Egyptologist in RFM. We'll lose them in the dialogue in the back and forth. They'll get so bored and they'll just say, well, okay, it looks like credible um, you know, fr from the believing, uh, questioning Mormon standpoint, what all this amounts to, this 45 minutes that we've just spent, is, wow, well, it sounds like credible Egyptologists can disagree on the meaning. I can either believe Dr. Rittner and apostate John DeLynn and clearly apostate RFM, or I can believe... Guy and, and Mulstein, who are faithful and keeping their covenants, since reasonable people are disagreeing, I'm going to just go with Guy and Mulstein. This is probably a hit. And now I don't have to pay attention anymore because I'm already so overwhelmed with all this symbology and Egyptology language that overwhelms me anyway. And what they've done by sucking us into an absurd conversation is 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 of get the, the fog and the eyes and the ears to glaze over and have people lose interest in the core reality, which is the fact that we're even having this conversation in and of itself, in and of itself is completely absurd. Now, am I making my point at all clear, Dr. Rittner or RFM? Do you guys kind of see what I'm getting at here? If we're looking from the standpoint of just some average Mormon who doesn't know anything about Egyptology, who's just trying to decide if they should believe in Joseph Smith Smith and the Book of Abraham are not, how these, these tactics of the apologists pull us into all this minutia that really might not help the average Mormon figure out if this stuff is true or not. Do I make any sense there? If I could jump in for just a moment. Please. Uh, that's why I asked if it was clear. <laughs> I, I realized I was doing, a, we, we were going down a wormhole, but I think it's important for anyone tuning in or, or watching this, if I'm going to make some sort of a declaration, I want to prove it. That's why when I write my books, they are filled with footnotes. You don't have to read those footnotes if you don't want, but I'm not going to make a generic statement without it up. And when I watched the podcast of the Fair Mormon uh, production of by John Gee of um, it was called the Book of Mormon. I mean, I'm sorry, the the Book of Abraham. I presume he went through a whole series of his recent discoveries before an audience, and he said, "Well, I went to this conference." And, I t and this is what I, I said. I, I, I showed that facsimile one was execration magic. 
And then I showed, I went and I showed so so and so, and I, I I talked about this and I showed this. What he never did is what we're all told to do in elementary school on math tests: show your work. He gives you the declaration, but he doesn't honor the audience or respect the audience enough to actually give them any of the details of how he actually comes to his conclusions. In that particular talk, he says, well, there's this formula, but the person got it wrong. There's there's an error in the math, and now let's move on. Well, the only way we know there's an error in the math is because John says so. He doesn't show it to us. So in all of his claims, John just says so. He doesn't display the evidence to the audience. And that is disrespectful to an audience that is perfectly capable of understanding the arguments. Our arguments, my Egyptian arguments, are weird because they're things that most people don't interact with. But if they're explained carefully, simply, you can follow them. Reasonable people can't understand them. I do this with students all the time who have no backing. I teach Egyptian religion to students who are taking it as an elective, who don't know any of the gods, don't know any of this deep theology. They hear me explain the kind of thing I just did, and they write papers on it. Uh, Education is what I do. But education means you actually explain the elements, and you argue in a reasonable way to create a coherent picture. I'm not going to simply tell you this is false, I would not have come on to this podcast and say, there is no human sacrifice, and then not follow it up with, here, let me show you what I said, and let me finesse it with the actual details. What apologetics don't do is give you the details to give you a a practical, comprehensive picture in context. Because if you don't have the context, then you're you're arguing about, okay, well, is this this figure of a god so-and-so? Well, who cares whether it's so-and-so? What if Joseph Smith had said it was Apollo? Okay, I'll give you, there's Apollo. Apollo is a god. But does that mean this image is Apollo? And does the fact that that's Apollo allow you to put Apollo in a text supposedly spun off of it? They don't do those, they don't do those extra steps. It's just, okay, yeah, this one fact we can just say, that, that's this, and we're done now. And that doesn't work. And John, this morning on what I heard from, the, from last week's uh, interview uh, on Mormon Voices, I think it is, Fair Voices, whatever. I'm sorry, I don't, don't know these. Uh, he, he talked about the difference between work by inspiration and work by scholarship. And he said you, you couldn't just have an inspirational understanding of the book of Abraham. You had to actually do the scholarship. And sometimes things like this were boring. But you had to actually do them. So I would agree with him. It's time he did. Absolutely. John, can I give you my overview of why this has been so many wormholes? Yeah, please, RFM. Okay. It's all set up by the apologists. Now, what I see going on, first off, we've got two similar things going on, and there are others as well. But the first thing we have is the issue about human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. We spent a lot of time on that. Second thing we had to do with was the 
four sons of Horus representing the earth in its four quarters. And we just spent a lot of time on this. Now, breaking those down and giving you the overview, please let me know if I have this wrong, Dr. Rittner. The state of modern Egyptology is there is a consensus that the ancient Egyptians did not repeat, not practice human sacrifice. And yet the Egyptologists go to this one example, which Dr. Rittner noted in his doctoral dissertation at that fort that had that individual who was apparently slain to create an angry ghost. And they cite, the apologists cite that as an example to prove that contrary to the consensus, there actually was human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. And so because they go contrary to the consensus and pick out one example, which actually does not support their position, it is left to people who know what they're talking about, like Dr. Rittner, to explain in detail why that does not support their position that there was human sacrifice in ancient Egypt. Those are the details that apparently the apologists do not want to go into. And the same thing, I think, happened with the Four Sons of Horus. As Dr. Rittner showed by looking at the dictionaries, there's nothing in those dictionaries that talk about the Four Sons of Horus anywhere as representing the four cardinal directions. In fact, there are other individuals and other gods who do represent the four cardinal directions. And yet, by looking at this one inscription about the Four Sons of Horus being sent out to the four directions with news of the new king's coronation to give it to the gods who actually do represent those four cardinal directions, it leaves Dr. Rittner and you and I in this podcast in the position of having to explain in some detail why it is that the apologists are wrong in making this association. So the wormholes and the details are necessary to show why they're wrong. The reason they don't have to go into these details is because they don't want to go into the details. They just want to present the erroneous conclusion as if it's fact and then move on and say nothing to see here. Do I have that right, Dr. Rittner? You've just proved my point that an intelligent listener can understand all of this because you are you just got an A. Yes. And, and Dr. Rittner, let me be clear. I'm not saying that what, what we just did wasn't valuable. I think it's extremely valuable because both in our first segment and in today's segment, what you're doing is you're actually showing the homework to show that the types of apologetics that Guy and, and Molstein and others and Rhodes have been using have not, uh, you know, are not based in legitimate Egyptian scholarship. I'm also just noting the fact that the game that they're actually playing is not to do good scholarship. What the game that they're playing is to just have, you know, names with, with, with credible sounding degrees and letters after their names give uh, Egyptian sounding like explanations, showing symbols, showing, you know, citations and footnotes so that the average member can just sort of go, huh, John Gee, where did he get his degree? Oh, it's at Yale. Oh, he's an Egyptologist. Oh, there's fancy hieroglyphics and footnotes. Well, clearly there's a smart 
Yale-trained Egyptologists that studied this stuff. And yeah, there may be other people that disagree. I don't understand all these fancy words and symbols, but that's good enough for me. And that's all I'm saying is there's a bigger game that they're playing here that has nothing to do with what's true and accurate and scholarly. It's just provide, like, like Oak said, they're just providing answers. And to many members of the church, the fact that there are answers from a guy who calls himself an Egyptologist, who got a degree at Yale, or, or Nibley, he's a smart guy, he got a PhD at UCLA and says he can read Egyptian. Well, if those guys say that they, uh, they believe it, that's good enough for me. And I'm just saying, I'm frustrated at the, at the fact that uh, for, for many of the members of the church who are trying to figure out if the book of Abraham is true, they're not going to have the time or the interest in listening to the details and reading the scholarship and reading Dr. Rittner's book. They're going to just have their eyes and ears glaze over and say, well, what Gia's done is enough for me. Does that make sense, uh, Dr. Rittner and RFM? That's exactly what this is doing. Yes. RFM, what do you, do you have any additional comment as well? Yes, the most important thing that I take away from this entire discussion, John, is that RFM got an A from <laughs> Dr. Robert Rittner. You did. <laughs> and do you want to address uh, what I'm I not said? Sure we get an A. I that's all true. I got, a, I got a higher score than John Gee. I think you did. Hot dog. <laughs> You'll get your PhD in the mail. <laughs> Come on, RFM. Number one, that's I, I, humor is essential. Number two, you got to validate what the frustration I'm expressing. Or I'm gonna... Oh, sure. Well, it's always frustrating, but you know this is the way things are in religion and politics and anything where people have a very emotional investment in one side or another which is they're simply going to look for people to validate what it is they already believe and if that person has a degree then so much the better um it's just uh, what is that called it's called confirmation bias right yeah and you actually have to look behind what it is that john gee is saying you actually have to go beyond uh, his summary conclusions that he presents in his presentations, like this recent interview, uh, he doesn't go into anything about what it is that he's talking about. In other words, why it is he's reached that conclusion. He just wants to give you the conclusion with the bare amount of facts that will support it. Um, I was just watching this morning, uh, Kerry Muelstein doing the same thing in another video where he talks about Kolob, right? And Kolob appears in the book of Abraham, and Kolob is from the Hebrew root, okay? Hebrew root, KLB, which means center, and then he calls it a bullseye. And I'm going, okay, if I'm listening to this as a third party who's never heard anything about this before, what on earth does a Hebrew word that has a root that means center that shows up in the book of Abraham, how is that a bullseye for anything? Well, he doesn't go there. And then they flip to the next one. This is a fair Mormon, I think, presentation. And they're just lining up the bullseyes. And it seems that if you say anything by a PhD Egyptologist, which Carrie is, and then say it's a bullseye, without, even without explaining why it is, and even though it doesn't seem like it would be, it's taken that way, at least if you want to believe it is from the outset. Thank you, RFM. Thanks, Dr. Rinner. And I hope you know uh, how grateful we are that you're 
that you're actually showing us the scholarship because you really are illustrating the weak foundation that Guy and Molstein and others are standing upon. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Did you want to talk about men's penises now? It is time. Penis, it is I time. It is time. So, so we've established that that six portion six of the hypocephalus uh, does not necessarily represent the Earth in its four quarters. Let's go on to portion seven of the hypocephalus. Uh, we have, according to Joseph Smith, it's representing God sitting upon His throne revealing through the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood as also the sign of the Holy Ghost unto Abraham in the form of a dove. So that figure sitting down with the thing sticking out upside down, Joseph has that being God sitting on his throne, revealing the grand keywords of the priesthood, the sign of the Holy Ghost and Abraham in the form of the dove. Now tell us, now that I've given you the correct Description of figure seven as described by Joseph Smith. Um, and we've got it here now um, enlarged and turned around. Can you now tell us, Dr. Rittner, what that is actually a picture of? Well, it's the, it's the god Min Ammon, a form of the creator god who begat the world by masturbation. He created air and moisture by his semen when he ejaculated. Uh, and he is shown in the act of basically doing that, uh, seated in two forms, both in a human form seated on a throne and in a bird form associating himself with the god Ray, the falcon god of the sun. The, the bird form is coming out of his back. He has one arm upraised holding a flail, which is one of the two symbols of authority and rulership. If you can imagine the coffin of Tutankhamun, one of many of them, is standardly the king has his arms crossed across his chest, and one is the shepherd's crook that he holds, and the other is the flail. And here the god is holding the flail. He has a, the god, god uh, approaching him is actually a lizard god, uh, whose name is the one who unites eternity. And he is offering to Ammon the Ujat eye, the symbol of health uh, and security, the eye of Horus. And he's hovering above an altar with flowers. Okay. And so uh, not necessarily a hit for... For Joseph Smith. Not exactly. RFM, do you want to tell us what this uh, image represents here? Um, are you uh, are you talking about men? M-I-N, men, Ammon? Yes, yes, but I'm now showing, can you see the screen? Yes, the one with the four different versions. Yes, tell us what happened. This is kind of the castration of men, basically. Tell us about that. Well, Dr. Rittner just told us about how men, Ammon was represented representing as commencing the creation through masturbation. Is that right, Dr. Rittner? Yes. This is where we get the term the Big Bang Theory, John. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it appears that there's been a love-hate relationship with men's penis through the years because in the – which one's earliest? It goes – yeah, top left. Top left okay, is 1902, Polar Great Price, facsimile 2. 
Yeah, in 1902, which wouldn't be the first time it was published, I think, but you can see that the penis is missing from that facsimile. Then in 1921, still missing, isn't it, John? Uh, in this one, yeah. So in 1981 now, bottom left, they put it back in. Apparently someone put it back in, realizing it had been taken out by mistake in the earlier Facsimile. Or intentionally taken out because it's obscene. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know how many times I'd looked at this and I'd never figured out this was his penis. It looks like he's a fire hydrant coming out of his navel or something. <laughs> you know, it's just it doesn't look like where I'd put a penis, at least not on my anatomy, not to give too much information. <laughs> maybe maybe all the other guys in the world have it coming out of their navel. I don't know. But 1981, it's there. And then in 2013 edition of the Pearl of Great Price, it's still present so it's still present in the current pearl of great price if you open it up you can see men's penis big as dallas right there but in earlier editions it had been taken out and perhaps out of modesty yeah we talked last episode dr rittner about sometimes uh you know christians or others being uncomfortable with with penises and, and scratching them out, right? I mean, this could be an example where the Mormons did that. True. Well, we, I, the examples I showed you from the Temple of Dendera had that kind of damage in the Holy of Holies and the roof chapels where the where Osiris is impregnating the bird form of Isis. And in fact, in many cases, the, the penis has been hacked out. Exactly. Right there. Yep. And were you aware that, that maybe so more? This is a common phenomenon that we find. And were you aware that maybe Mormons had hacked out uh, men's penis as well? No, I hadn't actually noticed that in the hand copy. <laughs> I, did, I did notice that Joseph Smith confused a, a Holy Spirit bird with a lizard. And the name of that lizard, the god, is named Neheb Kao, one who yokes the Ka spirits, the manifestations of reality. Ooh, that's cool. Okay, John, so I think, I think you'll agree with me that sometimes there, there's few things so satisfying as scratching a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ritter, do you have a response to that? No, I'm going to let that one go by. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably in enough trouble as it is. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm waiting for eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Okay, so going back, you know, so far, so Joseph's kind of really. Let's just say zero for seven for all intents and purposes. Um, figure figure eight, Joseph. So figure eight. If we look at the hypocephalus, it's on the kind of uh, on the left hand side in the middle, towards towards the bottom of a series of of rows. It's just some basic hier hieroglyphics. I'm I'm seeing, and according to Joseph, it contains writings that cannot be revealed unto the world, but is to be had in the holy temple of God. Are you able to read uh, figure eight and tell us what can only be revealed unto the world uh, in the holy temple of God, Dr. Rinner? Yeah, let's let's take these as a group. I'm glad you're able to do that. So eight, uh, nine, 10, and 11, it's those four rows there, on the left-hand side. to note here. One is if you went to go, if you were to go back to that earlier slide that shows the refill and the damage. This is a section that is partially missing and has been filled in incorrectly with sections taken 
from the Book of the Dead of Tasheret Men in, in certain parts of it. Um, it is also misnumbered by Joseph Smith. So he doesn't, not only can he not read it to uh, spoil the ending, but he's read it backwards. So that line, that his number eight should, if anything, be 11, because it starts at the top and works its way down. You never go from bottom to top. You can go left to right, right to left. And the way you know that is you look at the face of the hieroglyph, any figure that has a face, you read into the face. So it starts at the top in 11. And what it actually says is, O noble God from the beginning of time, great God, Lord of heaven, earth, underworld, waters, and mountains, the and mountains is missing because he's substituted at nine a a wrong phrase that's coming from the the book of the dead of Tashirat men. That's where it's a patch. Um, Cause that the Ba spirit, that's the bird spirit, of the Osiris Sheshonk to live. And this is where the last bit of writing in the lower left corner of eight is the personal name that survives of the original owner of this hoopocephalus. And that is what is missing that was broken out where they inserted the wrong script in the circle over by the Ra in his boat in the upper right. But here is where it's actually preserved, the Osiris Sheshonk. And that lets us know that this piece belonged to a mummy that was completely different from Tasheret Min, which has the restorations inside it, and completely different from Hor, from which the uh, flower altar is, is, is taken next to number two. So here's what actually lets us know who owned this. So one of the four mummies was named Sheshonk. And that is a name that's well known in the Bible because in the Bible it is ascribed to a king, Shishak, which is a different pronunciation of the same name. Sheshonk, Shishak are kings of Libyan descent who came to the throne in Egypt around 1000 BC. And it became a popular name after that, but it's of Libyan origin. And no one really knows what it means. Because it's not Egyptian, it's Berber. So So, that's what all of that is. Now, that corresponds to what you said for figure eight, contains writings that cannot be revealed unto the world, but to be had in the holy temple of God. That corresponds to, oh, noble God from the beginning. No, I'm sorry. That's number 11, which is, yeah, oh, oh, noble God in the time. The second line, which is actually number 10, which he says is also. Number meaning, nine meaning, where meaning, I think, the, ought not to be revealed at the present time. In other words, I'm just going to call you out on something, Dr. Rinner. 
a prophet of the Lord has clearly said that the meaning of 8, 9, 10, and 11 are not to be revealed at the present time unless it's in the holy temple. And here you are, Dr. Rittner, revealing these sacred things to the world when a prophet has said they are not to be revealed except in the temple of God. What have ye to say for yourself about that? My out is for his designation for figure 11. If the world can find out these numbers, so let it be. Amen. <laughs> Does this make me a prophet? <laughs> oh. I mean that it's kind of hilarious that number one, he's he's got the order wrong in terms of how you read these. Um, but then it's also hilarious that when he can't when he can't see symbols that he can sort of extrapolate meaning from, like a circle that means the sun, you know, or a table that he'll call an altar or whatever when he actually has to interpret actual, you know, characters that probably signify words, his translation is... They do is, signify words, yes. What's, what's that? In this case, they do signify words. And then he says, oh, sorry. Here's the chance to actually translate words <laughs> and not just explain symbols. <laughs> then he's like, sorry, this is too sacred. It can't be revealed at this time. Only in a special temple. Um, also, also, Ibid, etc., etc. <laughs> uh, yes. RFM, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that's good. I'm anxious to find out uh, what the rest of it means. Although down there on, is it, dang it, let me get my specs on. I, I mean, while, while you're reading, while you're getting your specs on RFM, it's probably worth noting 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Again, a bunch of actual symbols that, that, that represent words that have actual meaning. Joseph Smith's interpretation is it will be given in the own due time of the Lord. So, of course, he knows what it all means, but the Lord doesn't want us to know what they mean. But Dr. Rittner, do you want to tell us just quickly what 12 through 21 also say? I mean, you, you probably, it's probably not even worth reading, but. Well, actually, I was to... just struck by the similarity of his approach to that of John Gee. I know what it is, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Sorry, I think that's a really good comment that you make there, though, John, about the fact that wherever there is evidently actual script in need of translating, Joseph Smith begs off, and he only interprets the symbols and the pictures. Yeah, it's it's really convenient. And although, in fact, simile three is going to trip himself up and actually translate some real script. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like we've I feel like what we've talked about is important, but I also think we've beaten a dead horse. We know that. We know that this isn't part of the scroll, like he said it was. It's a hypocephalus, not a part of the scroll. We know that the parts that he filled in were copy and paste jobs. We know that the characters around the circumference were were uh, out of place. We know that none of the interpretations of the of the actual figures did he get right. And then whenever he had a chance to actually translate uh, 
characters or words he he passed and said that that these things are only to be read in a holy temple and that God doesn't want them revealed at this time. So it's kind of a joke, uh, which shouldn't surprise us. But is, is there anything else we're saying about facsimile two in addition to that summary, Dr. Ridner? Uh, no, the, t- the two baboons on either side of the central figure are just, uh, the, the text there simply says praising, praising God. Uh, the other texts you can, you can read in my translation if you, if you want to. And again, those are partly restored. So there's not much like, I mean, they're, they're artificially um, fleshed out again. Okay. And I think okay. we basically hit all the bases. I think the point should have been made. Okay. R- R- RFM has already gotten an A on this part, so. Okay. RFM, anything else you want to say about facsimile 2 before we jump to facsimile 3? No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, it's now time. If we have any listeners who are still listening or viewers who are still viewing, it is time to uh, to reach the final portion of this uh presentation where we talk about facsimile three and here it is here is a here is the rendition of how uh, members of the you know members of the early church would have seen joseph smith's depiction of facsimile three and uh what 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 do you want to tell us about facsimile three before we actually read joseph smith's explanations and have you interpret them or should we start there dr ridner um, well, I can tell you what it, what it basically is. And then you, l- let me just give a quick sec- summation. Then you, you can t- go through the, his explanations and we can go through those point by point. What you have is, is what most Egyptologists would recognize is the scene that typically concludes a book of breathings. So this would be the end of the Book of Breathing, which means we've got the whole manuscript. We've got the first part of it, and we've got the last part of it. Unfortunately, the the actual papyrus does not survive. However, this illustration should normally be placed toward the end, or at the end. And it is a good enough copy, which is really remarkable when you think of it, that you have people who are copying this who or just trying to copy a picture, and they don't really know what the squiggles are, but it's generally good enough that I can read it. Uh, I got more out of it than earlier writers. Klaus Baer, my predecessor, only got parts of things I, I was able to flesh out more. But what you have, and I'll be able to show you parallels, is we have, oh, the, the major figure is Osiris holding the shepherd's crook, seated on a throne, with in front of him a table of offerings with flowers. Okay, so, and, so, and just for our listeners, pull out your um, facsimile three. We're talking about figure one, which is the second figure from the left sitting down on the throne. Right. That's a that's. Yes. And whenever you have Osiris, as we did on, in the facsimile one, at his head there will be an altar with flowers. So in facsimile one, there was an altar there which was not the bed, but in fact, the stand with flowers. 
And we get the same kind of thing here, but this one doesn't have jugs on either side of it. That's number three. Standing behind Osiris is the goddess Isis, who is, who is wearing a dress, not a kilt. She has long feminine hair. She has the crowns of uh, cow horns and a sun disc in, on her head, which, are, which is the distinctive crown of the goddess Isis. Now, coming toward Os the seated Osiris is the goddess Truth of Ma'at, whose name is indicated by the ostrich feather on her head is in a sun disc. She is holding the hand of a man who has his hand upraised in adoration of Osiris. He has a cone on his head, one of these perfume cones that one wears at parties. And inserted into it is a horizontal ostrich feather, meaning true, or one who is justified, who has been found true at the weighing of the heart. He is coming in to be received by Osiris because he has now been found justified to live eternally in paradise. This is the moment of crossing into paradise, being accepted by the god Osiris. And the god standing behind the dark-skinned figure, standing behind the dead man, is the god of embalming Anubis, who has prepared the body and has acted as witness at the scale and who can verify that the man is now ready to join the underworld. This is the moment of triumph. And that's what all the texts are about. So that, in a nutshell, is what this is. It is a pivotal picture representing the culmination of the journey through the underworld, and it is the last typical scene at the end of the papyrus of the Book of Breathings which means we're at the end, which also means there's no missing text. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Rinder, I'm sorry to tell you that Joseph Smith sees it differently. And what I'll now do is share with you what Joseph Smith, how he uh, is reported to have translated these figures. And you can tell us, uh, and it'll be a little bit repetitive, but you can tell us whether he got it right or wrong. So the figure sitting on the throne, Joseph Smith has as Abraham. So apparently Abraham convinces the Pharaoh to let him sit on the throne. So we've got Abraham sitting on Pharaoh's throne as figure number one by the politeness of the king with the crown upon his head, representing the priesthood as emblematical of the grand presidency in heaven with the scepter of justice and judgment in his hand. Did Joseph get that right? Dr. Ridner. The scepter is correct, and the and the, the throne of Pharaoh is correct. You're saying it is a scepter. <laughs> so Joseph was I'm able... I'm saying it's a scepter. It's a scepter and a throne, you're saying. That's what I'm saying. But it's not Pharaoh. It is not Pharaoh. It is certainly not Abraham. It's the god Osiris, who is the very distinctive form of the god Osiris. It's not Pharaoh. Okay, okay. Um... The crown is specific to Osiris. 
The king only wears that when the king is dead and when the king is embodied as a form of Osiris. Right. No living king, no living king would put that crown on his head. It would mean he was dead. Okay. And by the way, would... would and Abraham wouldn't get to wear it either, not it, even as a party hat. Yeah, if, if Abraham existed and if Abraham was given you know, give an audience to whatever Pharaoh would have been there at the time in 1700 BC, how, what's the likelihood that Pharaoh would be letting shepherd Abraham sit on his throne? That would be sacrilege. Right. Then you'd have to watch him sacrifice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, RFM, do you want to say anything about figure one really quick? No, not at all. I think you guys are doing great. <laughs> okay. So figure two standing behind, uh, you know, who Joseph Smith calls uh, Abraham figure two. Figure two says that's Pharaoh giving up his chair, uh, King Pharaoh giving up his chair to, uh, to Father Abraham. It, <laughs> What's the problem with calling figure two um, King Pharaoh, Dr. Ritter, or what are the problems with that? Where to begin? <laughs> well, let's start with the fact that he hasn't gotten the gender correct. It's a female goddess. It is not King Pharaoh. And here you have King Pharaoh, which means he thinks king is the title and Pharaoh is the personal name. Uh and he goes on in that quote. Can we get that full quote? Uh, King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head? Right. I want to emphasize that. Because we actually have the surviving text. And I'll be able to, well... We'll be able to see it in just a second, but um, what we've got there is a text that's completely legible that says Isis the Great, the God's mother. <laughs> that's reading from top to bottom. That's, top, that's literally. That's to the right. The text to the right above Isis's it's head. Immediately in front of her head. Okay. It's between her and Osiris. Right. So the 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 text goes from top to bottom, and it says Isis, the great mother of the god. The god being referred to, mother of the god, is a, is this is one of her standard titles that represents Horus, the god who is born when she copulates with Osiris after his death. Now, I want to point out that this translation, Isis the Great, the Mother of the God, is so well recognized that it was also recognized, well, by Klaus Baer, by Hugh Nibley, by John Gee, by Michael D. Rhodes. All of them have recognized that this specific text can be read in Egyptian hieroglyphs by the signs above, by her head. It can be read and translated 
as Isis the Great, mother of the god. Now, I point that out because in Smith's analysis, he specifically refers to this as a translation, that he's getting this interpretation by these signs, which means he's actually now admitting here he is translating the Egyptian. And what everyone in modern times has said is that is not true, that he cannot translate, and that, in fact, it doesn't say what he's saying. It doesn't say King Pharaoh? The apologists, in fact, say, well, if it said King Pharaoh, Pharaoh is one of the most common hieroglyphic groupings. Imagine on Egyptian monuments, which are all about kings everywhere. Do you know how many times you would find the word Pharaoh written? There are two different words for a king, Nisut Biti or Para'a, which is the actual word for Pharaoh. You don't need to know that. They're just that they're extremely common phrases. Well, this is neither one of those. And those are extremely common. So if you could read anything, my beginning hieroglyph students can pick out the word for king on day two. If you have no knowledge of grammar, only know about five words, you'll know the word for king. It's kind of hard to avoid. <laughs> so he can't even get the most common word. So I want it to sink in what exactly has happened here. Because when Guy Nibley Rhodes affirm that this does not say Pharaoh, King Pharaoh, but instead says Isis, the great mother of the gods, they are doing by their hand upon paper a f- witnessing that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, nor could he understand by inspiration or any other means what these were. He could not read the text. He could not understand the symbol. He could not understand human versus divine. We'll soon see he can't recognize human versus animal. And he cannot recognize gender. So on every single point, he's wrong. Mm. And the apologists are in agreement that he can't do this. Anything you want to add, RFM? Throw in with a comment, John. Yeah. Yeah, this is got to be the most troublesome aspect of all of Joseph Smith's translation efforts from Egyptian for the Book of Abraham. Because when you're talking about symbols, even though apparently he got them wrong, 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 still you can talk about symbolism and you can expound upon it and you can say, well, maybe he caught some aspect of the total symbolic content of some character and he does that in facsimile one in facsimile two the only thing he translates are the symbols and as you noted john he specifically leaves alone and does not attempt to translate those parts of facsimile two that are obviously written in egyptian that are not just drawings of symbolic characters or gods or baboons or whatever you may have but it's in facsimile three And this may be the most important part of this podcast, I don't know, where Joseph Smith finally, completely commits himself to having interpreted 
and translated from Egyptian into English specific characters which he identifies in facsimile three. And when he says that he translates the, um, the name that's given in the characters above the head of facsimile two and gets it completely wrong as Dr. Rittner has just told us, that is the smoking gun. It's really hard to come back from that if you're an apologist because as Dr. Rittner has said, if the Mormon apologists admit as they have that he got this wrong because they all know what it really says and it doesn't say what Joseph Smith translated it as saying, then what they're affirming at one and the same time is that Joseph Smith could not translate from Egyptian into English. Right. All right. So, well, well, let's thank you, RFM. Let's finish out uh, the other characters. So that little, we, we see that little figure three reappearing. It was figure 10 in facsimile one. Um, Joseph, again, is saying that that little thing, I don't know how to describe it. He's saying it signifies Abraham in Egypt. How would you describe figure three RFM? I think it's a lotus table. A lo again, like what we had in, in facsimile one. And is there any reason to believe, Dr. Rittner, that that lotus table represents Abraham in Egypt? No. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Are we beating a dead horse if we made that point? Because it's a table with offerings. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> and something that maybe we haven't beaten is that that is actually the real image in all of these facsimiles that does represent a sacrifice. But it's yes, a, it's a it's food. Human one. It's a food sacrifice, right? Yes, which is the normal sacrifice, which is what Egyptians do. Offer. Got, got it. Okay, well, Joseph has figure four, which I'm, I'm guessing he got gender wrong again. He's saying the figure four to the right of, you know, um, what he's calling Abraham in Egypt, prince of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as written above the hand. What's wrong with calling that figure four prince of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Dr. Ridner? Well, it's a goddess for one thing. It's, it's got goddess. long hair. Like even I'm not a freaking Egyptologist or a prophet, and I can look at that and say it's a, it's a woman, right? Yes. <laughs> that doesn't take a rocket scientist. Long and wrong. But Joseph's got it as Prince of Pharaoh. And what's wrong with calling it Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt? Anything? Well, again, the implication is that Pharaoh is the personal name. And secondly, he's not, she's not a prince, she's a goddess. Not human, but divine, which is why she has a sun symbol on her head. If you have a sun symbol on your head, you are divine. And then, and then again, Joseph makes the mistake of telling us that her name, I'll say his name because the Joseph is a dude, Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt, that his, his name is written above the hand. So can you make out the hieroglyphs above uh, his, her hand to let us know if Joseph is translating those correctly or incorrectly, knowing well, that uh, he, he got it wrong on the previous in that it is her name. He, he's wrong that it's his name. It's her name. And it says Ma'at, the mistress of the West. She is a goddess of the West. So you can read you can read those poorly reproduced 
uh, hieroglyphics yes, to know. That is completely legible. And you're it's, sure? You're sure? It's it's not a good hand copy. My students would get a C uh, if they tried to write that. But it's close enough. I can figure out what was intended. But Dr. Ridner, are you absolutely sure that those characters don't say Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt? I just want to make sure. Doesn't say that final answer. <laughs> I'm being a little bit cheeky now. Okay. Char character five, figure five, Joseph says, Shulam, one of the king's principal waiters, as represented by the characters above his hand. Do the characters, first of all, is that Shulam one of the king's waiters? And is that what it says above his hand? No and no. What does it say? Who is it? And what does it say above his hand? It says the Osiris whore, the justified forever. That is our tomb owner, the owner of Osiris. That's a picture of whore. That's whore. That's him. Handsome guy. The man who is the owner of this text. And, okay, and you sure it doesn't say Shulam? Can you look one more time? I'm positive. There's no Shulam. No Shulam. RFM, do you see Shulam there? Well, no, but is there a Shulam name in Egyptian at all? That sounds Hebrew. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Can I give you a question here? Uh, granted that Joseph Smith cannot interpret these hieroglyphs correctly from Egyptian into English. Does Joseph Smith in your mind get any credit for recognizing that these are names of the associated individuals in the facsimile? Well, you know, when you have a label next to something, the chance of it being a name are pretty good. <laughs> so that's a qualified half a point. Okay, well, you can see I'm struggling for something. That is su half a point. That's super generous. <laughs> it's that half a point that's going to bump me from an A to an A plus, John. <laughs> okay. Before we get to the last figure, can we do the bottom? Yeah, please. So let's, I'll show it on the screen again. Okay. What does the bottom say? Joseph doesn't translate the bottom, so we don't know. What it says is, uh, and here's a case where there is some uh, issues, but I, I was able to figure out some parts of it that Klaus Baer couldn't, and I've got a full translation for it. Oh, gods of the necropolis, gods of the caverns, gods of the south, north, west, and east, grant salvation to the Osiris whore, the justified born by Taichebet, his mother's name. That's the whole thing. So what it starts with is an invocation, O gods of the cemetery, gods of the caverns, those are the underworld park sections that the spirit has to travel through in order to get to the tomb of Osiris, gods of the south, north, west, and east. Those are the gods of the cardinal directions. And you notice what we don't have in the picture? Tell us, RFM. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I was muted. Four sons of Horus, obviously. Exactly. So if they are the gods of the cardinal directions, where are they? <laughs> Grant salvation, that of course is the theme of the entire document. So what we're talking about now with this final picture, and that's why it's the final picture, 
He's now reached Osiris. He's gone through the caverns. He's in the cemetery. He wants justification so he can live like a blessed God among gods, which may or may not be uh, Mormon theology. I don't know, but that's certainly Egyptian theology. You join with Osiris as a god and part of his corporate personality. That's this little line under there is the complete major focus of the entire document. So that's why I wanted to point that out. Uh, and well-being to Osiris for justified. And then you give his mother's name because you need to, you need to specify which Horus you're talking about. So, uh, so in, one, in John Gee's earlier book, he remarks that this whole composition is all has includes never a an address to a god. Well, what's this? The whole thrust of it is here as an address to deity. This is explicitly uh, an address to deity. And also, before we leave and go to the last figure. I have to tell you about, in that same book, John made an attempt to explain the Isis figure, uh, and it's fairly priceless. And he says that it is understandable that the figure of Isis could represent Pharaoh in this scene, because in Rome, in the Roman period, in a Roman-adapted Egyptian celebration of the goddess Isis that is taking place through the streets of Rome, a Roman soldier who is a participant in the parade, not a priest, just someone going along in the parade, is dressed in drag. Maybe is Isis. But because that's going on in Rome centuries later in a different culture, an adapted ritual that just happens to be for Isis and people are celebrating Mardi Gras like, like they would under any circumstances, that that means that Pharaoh would dress and drag back in Egypt centuries before that as Isis. If you want to believe that, you can. <laughs> that one doesn't even get half a point, does it? Well, I quote that to my students just because I want them to hear it. It's a question of how you process logic. And you so when John does show his work, it can be a problem. Do you mean you actually use this as an example in class I, for your students I, as I, what not to do? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I have received some benefits from the experience. <laughs> Oh, I love Let's it. go to the last figure, shall we? <laughs> okay. So the last figure, according to Joseph Smith, uh, figure six, this uh, dark character on the far right with some sort of dark horn, Joseph says is Olimla, a slave belonging to the prince. Um, surely, surely that's what those characters uh, to the top left of that of that character say, right, Dr. Ritter? Well, none of that, actually. <laughs> what it actually says is words spoken by Anubis who makes protection 
Lord of Heaven, foremost of the Westerners. So is that Anubis again? From same from facsimile one. <sighs> yes, sadly, it's Anubis reappearing. It is. Well, it's like a new. I'm sorry. I, I think it's like Anubis uh, finishing his job with Hor, well, who in fact simply. So what we see at the beginning is the embalming process, and at the end, he is conducting the now glorified spirit who has been embalmed, who has had the weighing of the heart, and whose spiritual form now, not the physical form, but whose spiritual form is being brought in to be received in heaven with Osiris. Now, the striking thing about all of that, and let's keep that picture up, we can, we can deconstruct the analysis that um, Smith did in order to make that interpretation. All right. First of all, notice that we have a goodly amount of text. So if he's trying to squeeze things in, there's three columns. The columns go from left to right. And they start behind the head of Hor, behind his, the back of his head. They go toward the face of Anubis. Now, Anubis is black. And because of that, Smith assumes he is a black slave. His interpretation of slave is based entirely on the color that the figure is depicted. It's, he's racially profiling. <laughs> he does not recognize that, he ha that the, the head is actually a jackal's head. And part of the weird thing sticking up from his head is actually one of his ears, one of his erect jackal ears. Now, to prove my point, let's go to the next slide. So here we see a comparable end of a papyrus that's now in the Museum of Tübingen in Germany. This is that same concluding scene from A Book of Breathing. And here we can see the left-hand side, we have the goddess Isis with the very same titles that she has in the Joseph Smith hand copy. Uh, you'll notice that I did not say that she was Pharaoh, King Pharaoh. In front of her is Osiris, foremost of the Westerners, uh, with his appropriate title. Then here we have elaborately an altar with all sorts of food things that are stacked up defying gravity. Then we have the canopic gods, but with no title saying that they are, have anything to do with the quarters of the earth. They're standing on a rising lotus petal coming out, out of the water. Now, being led in front of all of this, if we can go to the next slide. So this is, this is the, the, the image continuing to the right on another page of paper, continuing right? Continuing to the right, because I can't get it all in one picture. Right, yep. So then we get the god Thoth, who is not depicted 
this has all these other figures who are not found in uh, this. Is, so this is a fuller writing with, with more of the scene. So we then get Thoth, the ibis-headed scribe who records the judgment of the weighing of the heart with his name. And after that, we have a stand on which the swallowing monster, Amiet, is sitting. She's part lion, part crocodile. And she, her purpose is to devour the soul of any deceased who fails the weighing of the heart. If your heart does not perfectly balance the feather of truth, the goddess Ma'at, and Ma'at feather is present here sitting on her head, the two feathers. If, if the heart doesn't balance those feathers, this monster swallows the heart and you cease to exist. Your personality is destroyed. You have no afterlife. You are completely exterminated from all existence now and in the future. And you reach Buddhist nirvana which for Egyptians would be absolute hell. Buddhism is the worst possible imaginative religion for the Egyptians because the point of Buddhism is to lose all trace of your personality and your identity because life is suffering. For the Egyptians, life is beautiful. You want to take it in every way except suffering into the next world, which is why you bring all your accoutrements with you, why you, why you want your family with you, etc. Is like Egyptian is life affirming religion, not like Buddhism, which is life damning. Consequently, the loss of personality is the one thing the Egyptians fear. It's the one thing Buddhism wants. Here is an example of just how contrasting things can be. By the way, in a popular book on Egyptian mythology, I inserted that, and my British editors struck it out for fear of insulting a Buddhist audience. Mm. So, you know, censorship is rampant everywhere, even 30 years ago in England. I couldn't mm. even speak the truth about the nature of how an Egyptian would view Buddhism. Mm. This is not to slander Buddhism. It's to tell you what the Egyptian point of view would be and how radically different they are. Right. So, uh, again, adding to my reputation for bashing religions. <laughs> um, and then we get Anubis clearly shown with his dark skin, and he is conducting the tomb owner here into Osiris. So here, again, Anubis is acting as the guide, holding the hand and bringing them in. The order of them is reversed here from the other, but you'll notice we have mostly the same cast of characters. And you'll notice this is also what you get to, to cap off the, the scene. So then we let's look at the text. Now, the problem with this particular text, a problem, you know, now requires me to discuss something very unpleasant. It's something that I have pointed out specifically in my book and was even included in the press release of my book by Scholars Press. And that is when we were talking about the image that, that I showed you from the woodcut, facsimile three, 
I stressed that there were three columns in front of Anubis's head. Here we have the description of the hieroglyphs as produced by Michael D. Rhodes in his competing book, which came out after my own translation first appeared in Dialogue, the Journal of Mormon Thought, where I read all of this. And by the way, you can see there he has to the right of Isis, for those of you who can see, the scry, the scene, and it specifically has Isis, the great mother of the god, in hieroglyphs. So he agrees with me as to how this works. You will notice also in the top line, he has the inscription from the bottom, which is missing parts and has this hatching. You see the diagonal lines, that's for what is broken or you simply can't figure it out. So when you put that, that means you can't read it. So he wasn't able to read a section up there uh, in that line, which I did read, but which I had not read in the dialogue version. I was able to read it in my later book. Now we go down to the bottom and we get Anubis. And you can see that same hatching is there. But you will notice that there are signs above and to the right of that hatching. And we'll talk about that when we see the next slide. So here, facsimile three on your left, Again, you will notice that there are only three columns, vertical columns, in front of the face of whom we now know is the jackal god, Anubis. And column one, which is at the far left, ends, ends at the shoulder of the man, Hor. And it contains only a, a limited number of signs, but according, if we compare that with Michael D. Rhodes's transcription of the hieroglyphs, converting those over into hieroglyphs, he ends his bottom column with that hatching, the same as he did in the top line where he couldn't read something. So he didn't know what to do with that, clearly, and that's what he's indicated. And you'll notice that just in front of the hatching, there is a long angular sign pointed at both ends. You can probably find that if you look in the inscription. You who are watching this podcast, for those who can see it, can probably see there's a fully blacked in shape that's lozenge form that's pointed at both ends. It's fully full filled in with black and it's the next to bottom. And it's the only thing that looks like that in that line. You will notice that there's no other example of something that's long and pointy like that in that line. There's only one of them. Now I would ask you to look back where it says in front of Anubis in the Michael D. Rhodes copy. He has just atop that hatching scratch lines that same shape not filled in, 
And as it's as he has copied it, it looks like what is in Egyptian the letter R. That's what it would look like. It's actually a mouth. But you will notice that immediately adjacent to it, to his right, there's another one of these long, thin, pointy things at the end. But this has a pupil in the middle because it's now been converted into an eye, the eye you see with. That's the Egyptian verb to do or make. Then you'll notice that something is filled in next to the shady sign. But if we match this up with the papyrus as copied in facsimile three, there's no room for that. That adds an extra column. If we go above the I sign on the Michael D. Rhodes column, we see a text that ends with two little lines. You can match that up in the picture. And that's where the top of that ends. So there is this thing that's down here with the eyeball cannot be part of that inscription because we can match it up. You too can match the hieroglyph to the hieroglyph and see that that's where the text actually ends. So how on earth did Michael D. Rhodes get a whole new column of text that isn't there? And if the end of the first column is hatching, how did it sprout another column next to that? How did that happen? It's not in the facsimile, and it's the only facsimile there is. The papyrus does not survive. So it has to be coming from the facsimile, right? Well, let's look at the next slide. Here is a close-up of what I'm talking about. So, uh, John, I don't know if you can do a cursor that can point some of this out. The hatching... I think we're talking about this... The first column is the far left. So this... So here's what I'm getting. So this part that I'm circling in blue, right? I'll, I'll change I, it to I'm red. I'm not actually able to see the blue. I don't know. RFM, can you see the blue? Can you guys yes, see what I'm... I can, and he just circled it with red, too. So I'm circling oh, it with red. This portion right here... Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I, 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 was, I meant to circle the facsimile. So what, what I heard you say is that this part right here, I believe you called that a mouth. Is that right? The, the, just above what you just circled is the mouth. So this uh, this this is represented here as hatching. So but what over, I want you to do is to draw a, a draw a line between the thing that's just above the hatching to the thing that's just above what you circled on the facsimile. I'm kind of thinking like that, right? Take that and connect it over to what's above the facsimile one, the one sign above what you circled already. Okay. So those are the same. Yes. This is the same as that. Right. Yep. And so the hatching is the same as what's underneath that. These two right? things correspond. By, by obvious logic and no other choice. Yep. That's what's there. And then this thing that I'm circling right here corresponds to this thing right that. here. 
all right. So my my question is, where does the other column come from? So there's a question mark here and that, right? Where? How did that extra column get there when there's nothing there in the actual image, right? Yeah, there is absolutely nothing there at that spot for him to put that. Okay, I get it. We get I think we get it. Well, I'm hoping that's really, really clear. I think it's clear. This is, legal, this is a legal point. Yep. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. Oops. <laughs> it looks like oh, that's the... it. Let, let's let oh oh I see is that now permanently on the screen? <laughs> okay, now it should be it should be back now. Okay, here we go. In 2002, at the time I was first asked to work on the Joseph Smith papyri, I was also asked to work on a papyrus for a very small museum in Tennessee, the McClung Museum. They had just bought a small papyrus. It was in tatters. I'm showing you a section of it here. And they asked me if I could read what writing there was. And there happened to be a figure of Anubis. And so I was able to read the inscription above his head. You can see perhaps, although he's, his face is broken away, you can immediately recognize his very distinctive jackal ears, the pointy ears. And if we do a close-up of that, next slide, Here we have, there's the general scene on the left. And what he's doing is he is conducting the tomb owner, who's shown in the right. This is the far left image. He is grabbing that person's hand, walking them toward the flower altar with, and there you can see the legs of Osiris sitting on his throne. So this is the same scene we have in facsimile three. Now, there is a text panel directly above the head of Anubis, and there you can see the whole text panel in the middle slide. And the bottom epithet of Anubis, after it says Anubis, there are some hieroglyphs that are just above the tips of his ears. And that is what you've got in the super close-up of the third slide. And what I'm trying to tell you, although it's, it's broken and hard to see, is the top sign is the eye with the eyeball. And the sign immediately underneath it is the looped and tied cloth, which is a hieroglyph of an amulet, which is the word for protection. It has the phonetic value year sa, and it means who makes protection. I hadn't seen this as an epithet of Anubis anywhere else. This is a rare epithet. It makes sense because in the text of the Book of Abraham, it actually says he makes protection. 
So this keys in, this would key into something said in the text. However, no one had recognized it as being on facsimile three. It only occurred to me because at the same time I was working on the one papyrus, I was also working on the other. No one has seen this McClung papyrus. It's a small papyrus in a small museum that had not been published until I published it, until I provided the information actually for Elaine Evans, the curator, to publish it in their local uh, a one-sheet takeaway piece handed out in the museum. So basically, none of my colleagues have ever seen this. No one could have seen this inscription on this papyrus, which is not common. There is no way you would come up with this reading or know about it without having seen this text, which, as I've said, no one has seen. So let's go to the next slide. Or back to the last slide. So what we've got in my book, I translated that sign, the blacked-in sign before the hatching and roses, as Yir Saw, who made protection. That's the my reading in my publication and never done by anyone else previously. In Michael D. Rhodes's book, his English translation suddenly has my translation, who makes protection. However, his hand copy where he reproduces it in the plate, as you've seen in there on the right, has not the I sign and the tied loop for the saying make protection, which he translates, but it has an R over hatching, which is what Nibley had and what he had copied and what he clearly had sent to the printer before he saw my manuscript after the book was after the article was out and then rushed to make a correction and when the press did so they failed to remove the old reading which was from nibley and they failed to put my new one which they were taking and they failed to put it on top of that Instead, they mistakenly put it side by side. So they stole it and then didn't cover their tracks. They put it side by side rather than replacing it. And what makes it particularly irritating is not only have they taken my reading, which was pointed out by me in my book, but they have never even acknowledged the existence of my article and my book anywhere in the roads or subsequent publications of these texts. They have completely pretended I did not exist so that they could say they did this independently and pretending that Mr. Rose's book came out at the same time as my dialogue and later JNES article. And that, that's not true. Dialogue article was out before. 
and it was circulating in copy from Dialogue uh, and by IRR uh, well before that. So this is a clear case of poorly done plagiarism. And there are other cases like that, which I have pointed out in the notes in my book. Yeah, what I would say is it's one thing to never mention you, even though that doesn't seem to be very professional or scholarly. It's one thing to never mention you, Dr. Rittner. It's another thing to steal your original research and still never mention you. And to get it wrong. <laughs> well, and, and to do such a clumsy job of theft. Yeah. I mean, it is a clumsy job of theft. And I seriously consider getting a lawyer. But I'm, the, the, bigger, the bigger picture here is what they did is they clearly acknowledged that I'm right or they wouldn't have taken it. And they're also acknowledging at the same time that Smith couldn't read it because if he could, then they'd be having hieroglyphs that actually said what Smith's label said. And by doing what they did, they have basically confirmed, as I said, by their own hands upon paper, that this is not a, a translation and the whole book of Abraham is a forgery. So it's kind of like the last chance that they might have had to say that Joseph Smith could have been right was by saying that this part of the name can't be written and leave it as uh, those scratches, those scratch marks, right? Exactly. But, but then when they look at what you wrote, they rob it from you, they put it in there in place of it. What they are acknowledging now, without acknowledging you, they're acknowledging the fact that you can read all of the glyphs from top to bottom and that Joseph Smith's translation of them doesn't appear anywhere in them. Correct. There are other cases that I have documented specifically within my book. Um, I could even, if necessary, cite chapter and verse, but there are places where they fail to recognize in the uh, first papyrus in the Book of Breathing, there are sections where they followed Hugh Nibley, where Hugh Nibley didn't know what to do, and Rhodes simply followed that. Then he saw my reading where I had reinterpreted from Demotic, which is something that Rhodes can't do. And they adapted what I had in the body of Rhodes's book, but they forgot. But Rhodes also included an index of all the words, and they forgot to change it in the index. So for that, for that passage in the index, it gives, still gives Nibley's reading but and an explanation by Nibley. And then you go to the actual page where it's translated and suddenly there's my reading. No footnote, no explanation. Why is it that the reading he gives in his translation doesn't match his own index where he discusses the word? <laughs> and the word in the index comes from the source that he could crib from that was out that had been out for a generation. And the one that's from me I, had just happened, and he had a limited amount of time to get it into the book and apparently couldn't do it well. So there are multiple cases of really sloppy work as a plagiarist, not to mention sloppy work as a scholar. What do you mean? Uh, in terms of that, as a scholar and, and legal matters, the, the, this is simply inexcusable. He owes me an, a, fo a footnote 
and an apology. <laughs> so as I'm understanding you, this last example, he would have originally had it uh, in the body of his work. He would have had the Hugh Nibley uh, translation, which would, of course, connected with the Hugh Nibley footnote, correct? Correct. And then he, your, your piece came out. He changed the body of the paper to match your translation, but he forgot to change the footnote, which still went to Nibley, which had the different translation. And the, and the index in the back where he actually cites all the words. So, there, so this passage is in the index, but under Nibley's reading. Have you ever seen the movie Poltergeist? Yes. You move the headstones, but you left the bodies. Yeah, right. But the, isn't that, in a nutshell, the approach taken by the apologists? You go for one little point and you don't sweat the details. Exactly. Exactly. And isn't it fitting that Mormon apologists would plagiarize when doing defense of a plagiarist, which, which we know Joseph was. Okay. I, I, uh, just, just to close up, if we go back, and this is so great, Dr. Rittner, thank you for helping us understand the quality of the work of these uh, apologists, these Book of Abraham apologists. Um, I'm still disgusted by the fact that Joseph Smith sees a dark figure and just assumes it's a slave. Um, with his 19th century worldview. I'm really curious, why is the head of Anubis different than, you know, above? It, it looks more, is it like a jackal, like, kind of like a dog's head here? Why, why is the head down here looking less like a, a jackal or a dog and it's looking more like some weird human head? RFM, you want to talk about that? Absolutely. And I've got to reference Paul Osborne, who's made this significant discovery. And I think he's right. What he did was, first off, if you look at that, uh, the spike coming out of his head, Dr. Rittner already mentioned that that spike, which is very strange, is actually an ear. It's one of Anubis's ears. That's why it's coming up out of his head, because it's a jackal ear. It's not a human ear. If you look at the eye, it's much, it's outsized for the head. You notice that? The eye is outsized for the head as we have it. But what Paul Osborne noticed was that if you go back and actually look at the lead plate, apparently these, this, at least this one was not a woodcut. It was printed from a lead plate that was constructed by Reuben Headlock, who's the guy who did all of these facsimiles and did the plates for them for publication. Originally, in the lead plate, there is a jackal's snout on figure six. It goes out quite a ways and then comes back, of course, underneath. And you can actually see the teeth in the snout. Now, you can't see it here in this reproduction, of course. But in the, okay, what this is basically showing is that it was originally a jackal and that Reuben Headlock did the lead plate based upon figure six with a jackal head. And I think that's somewhat significant. He didn't just make it into a human head in the lead plate. Originally, Reuben Headlock made it with a jackal head. In other words, he made it conform to the way it really looked in facsimile three, which doesn't exist anymore. We don't have that one. That one's still lost. But if you look carefully at it, as um, Paul Osborne has, and you can find this in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, you can actually see the outline of the jackal snout, which apparently was hacked 
out of the lead engraving, the lead plate after the lead plate had been created. So somebody, perhaps Joseph Smith, likely Joseph Smith, directed Reuben Headlock for some reason to take the jackal snout off of figure six so it would no longer be a, a jackal-headed figure. It would no longer be Anubis, but it would be a human head. But while he took off the jackal snout, he left the jackal ear. Now, when you go back to figure three, uh, I mean, fig, facsimile three, uh, there's a speculation, which I think Paul Osborne did, but it's only speculation. It can only be speculation. Between facsimile one and facsimile three and all the other facsimiles, there's only two black ones. Right. 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 Yes. And in facsimile one, it's the priest of Elkinah, which had the head gone and which was substituted with a human head, right? And so now all of a sudden they get to facsimile three, they got another black person, which is a lot like the priest of Elkanah in facsimile one, except he's got a jackal head. Right. So that might have been seen as counterintuitive yeah. to Joseph Smith. Why do I have why did I put a human head on the black figure? In facsimile one, I've got a jackal head here. Well, I'll change the jackal head here after the lead plate is created, by the way. I'll change it here and I'll make this into a human head. Yeah. Really quickly, gentlemen, the last thing I'll just note is as, as we read Joseph Smith's description or interpretation of facsimile three, he writes at the bottom, Abraham is reasoning upon the principles of astronomy in the king's court. It's got to be that those little star-looking characters on the top, Joseph interpreted those as stars and then sort of then interpreted the Joseph, that Abraham is contemplating, you know, the, the solar system in the universe and astronomy. Is that fair to say, RFM and well, Dr. The stars actually are stars. That is a representation of heaven. So we got that right. That's the point five. Yep, the five-pointed stars are still five-pointed stars. I had never even noticed the stars before. I was thinking too much that he just took the well-known story out of Josephus, where Abraham takes the knowledge of astronomy from Babylon to Egypt. Now, this is this is a regular scene uh, where where you want to indicate the global nature of this scene. You you give a representation of the heavens. Just as you have a baseline, which represents the baseline of the underworld Earth here. So it's the frame. Well, the gentlemen, the stars. well, gentlemen, this has been an amazing and important uh, few hours. I, I can't thank you guys enough. Do Dr. Rittner and then RFM, is there anything you guys want to say to kind of summarize? And then we'll just pick right back up with this the next time we all meet. First, you, Dr. Rittner, any summary you want to make? Well, I would just ask people to think about what we've covered and just whether this makes a coherent picture or not. And if you add it all together, is this text salvageable as a work of historical authenticity? And I want to stress one last thing for me from at this point is that it is not my role to comment on the religious nature of this. Whatever you want to believe, you are welcome to believe, and I have no right to tell you what not to believe, what your theology is. My only role is to answer the question, is this a historical document? Does it reflect Egyptian ideas, and is it translated properly? 
that's all that I'm trying to do and be a, and actually do the scholarship that goes with it. And uh, I'll let you judge me on that. Thank you, Dr. Rittner. RFM, do you want to add anything? Yeah, just briefly, John. First off, thanks so much to Dr. Ritter for making these things more clear and available to the ordinary guy like me. Uh, what I keep coming away from, John, as I study this more and more, is the fact that the apologists, those with the Egyptological degrees and those who parrot what they say, which used to be me at one time, by the way, when I know what they're saying and I know what they're not saying and I know and can recognize the pseudo-scholarship and the deceptions that they are engaged in, then I can recognize that really what they're doing is the equivalent of arguing for a flat earth. What they're doing is taking a theory that is not accepted by anybody in their, in their own academic community because it's considered to be ridiculous, and they're taking little pieces of evidence, which aren't really even evidence, until they change them, transform them, make them something they're not, and then they present those little pieces of evidence in the face of overwhelming mountains of contradictory evidence and try and argue that the earth is flat when everybody knows it's round. Except what they're trying to do is argue that the book of Abraham is authentic and ancient when apparently everybody other than them knows that it's not. Well said, RFM. Well, that takes us through uh, facsimiles one through three. What we still have to cover, we want to cover the 1912 New York Times article where Egyptologists analyze uh, the three facsimiles and give their opinion. We'll talk about that next time. We still have to talk about the rediscovery of the papyra in you know 1966-ish time period, the emergence uh, of the um, Abraham Egyptian papers, uh, thanks to the Tanners and others. And then we're going to talk about an analysis of the Abraham, Abraham Egyptian papers um, and more evidence that, you know, that, that Joseph Smith indeed either was attempting to or believed he was uh, attempting to translate or believed he was translating um, or at least wanted people to believe he was translating. And we'll do an in-depth analysis of uh, the, the Abraham Egyptian papers and how they make it very, very clear, as I believe and many believe is a smoking gun, that in fact, uh, you know, we can't, the, the, the view that Joseph Smith was just sort of using the papyrus as inspiration in the catalyst theory to, to receive the revelation, that that doesn't hold water because in fact, uh, we, we have documentation that really demonstrates that Joseph was looking at Egyptian characters and then uh, creating or manufacturing text to directly correspond with uh, Egyptian characters that were on the papyrus. Is that, is that an okay summary of what's to come, RFM, plus a full analysis of, a more in-depth analysis of apologetic techniques by Guy, Milstein, um, Rhodes, and others, including some heroes in this story, which include um, our, our dear friend, uh, Brian, and, uh, and maybe some others. Anything you want to add in terms of what's to come, uh, RFM? 
No, I think that covers it. And for those who don't know that, Brian, you're referring to as Brian Hauglid. Brian Hauglid, I spaced for just a second. Shout out to Brian Hauglid, who's kind of a hero in the story, I think. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Dr. Rittner, is there anything else you want to add for what, what is to come? No, it should be exciting. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, you guys are brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, and I do want to mention at the end, and I'll, I'll add this to the beginning as well, that as always, uh, Dr. Rittner is facing kidney failure and is in need of a living donor to secure his life and continued research. If you can help, please contact Dana McLean, Northwestern Medicine Transplant Coordinator, 312-695-0828. Living donors save lives. Let's please use uh, this opportunity to help Dr. Ritter, find a kidney donor and to continue his important work. Thank you. All right, Dr. Ritter, you take care. We'll see you again soon on Mormon Stories and on Radio Free Mormon. RFM, thanks again for joining us and taking your time out. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time. All right, we'll see you guys uh, really soon. Bye-bye. Take care, guys.
Egyptian Walk like an Egyptian 